TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. feel relaxed i know i do that's good because we are going undercover tonight with two of our favorite detectives thanks for joining us this is the made for tv mayhem show and my name is amanda reyes i'm here with my two co-hosts who i'll introduce in just a second but just in case you didn't look at the little notes thing that comes with the itunes or stitcher uh description we are talking about two cop pilots which i'm really excited to discuss the first one is house on green apple road which excuse me would end up becoming the Dan August TV series. And then afterwards, we're going to talk about Smile, Jenny, You're Dead, which was the second pilot movie for the short-lived but wonderful TV series, Harry O, with David Jansen. Um, I think this turned out to be a really good double. I just sort of randomly picked them, not even realizing they were both pilots, to what would become pretty short-lived TV series. Um, and they also both starred really wonderful actors, uh, not just the leads. I think the casts of both films are magnificent. I don't want to be too spoilery right off the bat, but I think both of these um, TV movies are very worthwhile. So we just want to get started here. So let me say hello to my co-host, Dan. Hey, Dan, what's up? Amanda, Nate, did you know I can fly? I can fly! True story. Oh, Zalman King, how I love thee. <laughs> well, I was going to do... <laughs> I was... Oh, you're so good. I was going to do one of two intros. I had a Harry O-style narration planned, but I couldn't think of a solid ending. So I thought I'd just fly instead. How are you doing? What's going on? <laughs> That's very apropos to the to the TV movie. <laughs> good. Um, and Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Did you both know that Eve Plum is in the house on Green Apple Road? No, no. I don't think I did. What? <laughs> Yes, I'm so excited about that piece of trivia. You finally have some trivia. It's on the wrong show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I never have it for the um, Hysteria Continues. Yeah. But real briefly, speaking of the Hysteria Continues, and before we get started, this is the only time we're going to get a chance to plug for it again, but um, our show, the Made for TV Mayhem show, was nominated for a Rondo Award for Best Multimedia Site, which is just their uh, AKA for Best Podcast. Um, And we're really excited about that, and the reason why I brought it up piggybacking on Nate is that he was nominated twice in that category so the Hysteria Continues also got their first Rondo nomination which shocks me it took this long but um, it's such a wonderful show and so just briefly I just want to tell you what categories I was nominated for and we were nominated for and how to vote for us if you'd like to and then we'll get right into the show and we can forget I ever mentioned it so anyway again we were uh, nominated for Best Multimedia Site the Made for TV Mayhem show Um, I was nominated for Best Event for a talk that I I gave at the Brooklyn Horror Film Fest 
um, as part of the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies lectures. Uh, it was called Big Scares on the Small Screen. It was a brief history of the TV movie. That was for New York, um, and that's under Best Event. And also my uh, good friend, Bill Ackerman from Supporting Characters, and I were nominated for Best Commentary for The Last House on the Left. Uh, so... I'm a triple threat this year. I don't think that'll ever happen again. I'm really excited about it. I, I'm so excited about the podcast because I know that we're very niche, and it's so nice that um, somebody uh, put our name in the hat, and I really, really appreciate that. I don't know what our chances are up against some really big sites. Like, The Stereo Continues is, like, ten times bigger than we are, I think. But I think it's brought us some new listeners. I know I've gotten some more feedback from people and some more likes on our pages uh, for from people wandering around and so thank you for joining us and anyway just go visit the website it's www.rondoawards.com and just look and see uh, all the categories are really wonderful there's some really great people in the best multimedia site category so vote with your heart and uh, voting closes on April 20th and you can send all of your um, ballots to terraco at aol.com which is just t-a-r-a-c-o at aol.com and then one more thing before we get started uh, my schedule is been really insane and so dan was kind enough to edit this episode and i'm only mentioning it now because if it totally sucks you know who did it and if it's totally awesome you, you know to thank me for having dan do it i want to say that rondo hatton might would probably vote for us so yes and you know this rondo awards is named after rondo hatton it is you've done your research nate i know <laughs> I, I, I did i did very good this time i have to say <laughs> quite proud of myself yeah. No, it's really neat. I think we are the first TV movie podcast that's been nominated. Yeah. I'm sure there are podcasts that have done TV, but I think we're the first ones to do this. So that's really neat. Just being nominated in this category is kind of a big deal because, like I said, we're niche. And I, I don't actually look at our numbers, so I don't know who's listening really um, unless they drop us a line. And we've gotten some really nice emails from people. Um, but it's just really cool to to be in such a – what people think is maybe kind of throwaway type programming, but people seem to really be enjoying that. And one of the things that Rondo does is it's all about the preservation of genre stuff. And I think that we're doing that in our own way. And so it's nice to be appreciated for that. So, um, yeah, so it's really important whether we win or not. I think it's just really important to have shown up on the list. So thank you, everybody. But enough of this shameless self-promotion. Let's start, start talking about cops and packing heat and really sexy men with dark hair. Um, but before I do that, I want to kind of give you a little background. And so here's what happened. So I found this really neat article. So where I work, I'm an archivist, and I do reference shifts. And when I do the reference shift, if it's really slow, a lot of times I'll do research on the podcast or on things I'm working on. And so I did some background research on cop shows in the 70s, and I found this really amazing article. The problem is, is that I wasn't on my regular computer, and I just knew I was going to remember the name of the article and where I found it, and I tried to find it today, and I couldn't. So I don't know who wrote this, but sometime in the 70s, there was a really great article written by somebody out there who was talking about the year 1973, which sort of falls between the two TV movies we'll be discussing. Now, what they wrote was that basically there were 24 cop shows that were introduced to the network, um, I think, for the 73-74 season. So the article that I read actually said that that came on the heels of the rural purge, which I thought um, Dan might be interested in because he's knee-deep in uh, the rural uh, sitcoms of the late 60s, 70s, and you probably know all about the rural purge because sure that's when we got rid of all of those great shows. But this is what's so interesting. So 
the reason why the world purge happened, there's a lot of different ideas about why it happened. But um, one of the things that this article pointed out was that the networks were trying to invite a quote unquote higher class demographic, which I find kind of offensive, but I think they're just quoting the network executives at this point. And also they felt that cop shows, which I thought was fascinating, provided an antidote to the chaos of the era. So what that meant was with all the stuff happening with Vietnam and off the heels of the late sixties and the counterculture movement and all the protesting and civil rights, that cops were symbolic of law and order. And also the detectives were somewhat realistic in that they were cynical, but they were also idealistic. And there was definitely, well, what's interesting is you could say that there was a black and white, good and bad, but there really wasn't. If you've seen the Ironside pilot, it's really fascinating. That is about law and order, but it's also about that anybody could be the bad guy. And I don't want to be too spoilery about that, but definitely see that pilot if you haven't had a chance. I think it's really emblematic of what this article was trying to state. But then what's so interesting about that is by 74, there were some variety articles about how networks were actually looking for warmer programs because the Waltons had really taken off by like 72, 73. Everybody wanted to mimic these large families, which is, I guess, where Eight is Enough came, Little House on the Prairie. So there was this kind of balance that people were looking for. But in the early 70s, um, there was this idea that cop shows were really popular because America was getting really tired of dealing with so much tumult. And so uh, I think the House on Green Apple Road is actually really emblematic of that. And I think it's really emblematic of the way cop shows used to be and to a degree the way they are now, because we're really just walking with Dan August but we're not necessarily in his shoes because we don't know much about him as a person. We just know about him as a, as his career, you know, as a cop. And so um, that's kind of fascinating. I think by the time we get to Harry or four years later, then we start to get more involved with the lives of these detectives. But um, here, I think we're looking at what was really prevalent in the late 60s or very early 70s cop series. So I just wanted to preface this conversation with a little bit of context because I love cultural context and because I thought it was important and because I thought that article that I can't find anymore was really amazing and I wanted to sort of talk about it. So, um, but anyway, let's go ahead and just get started with um, House on Green Apple Road. Dan, are you ready? I am, I am. The movie begins, and I'm not going to give you every single scene here, folks, because it's. It, I think this is the longest movie we've talked about so far on the show because it was in a two-and-a-quarter-hour time slot, I think. Am I crazy? That's really interesting because TV movies in the se- early 70s were about 74 minutes long. They weren't even into the two-hour programming time slot. So even to get to the two-hour time slot is kind of intense. Yeah. So... Uh, this one begins with a car peeling out of a driveway really quick, and then immediately another car pulling up to that driveway and freaking Jan Brady getting out of it. It's Little Eve Plum, and she goes to the door, and she yells for her ma, who is named Marion, uh, but her ma is not there. However, the kitchen of their house is covered with approximately seven pints of blood. And standing in the center of the kitchen is Anby Davis with a butcher knife. No, I'm kidding. There's no one there. There's no sign of a body. There's no nothing. <laughs> There's just blood everywhere. And so Eve Plum, her, her character's name, I'm sorry, is Margaret. Uh, she runs next door to her aunt's house, uh, Leona Miller, played by Julie Harris. And she calls the police. And Dan August shows up with Keenan Wynn, who is uh, Sergeant Charlie, I believe is his name. So Lieutenant August is there, and they begin to um, check out the, the site. And, yeah, there's a lot of blood everywhere. There are a lot of uh, grocery bills. Uh, they check out uh, the refrigerator. They check out a deep freeze. August sort of goes to the whole house. Lots of other cops shows up. The, show up. The forensic guys show up. August's boss shows up. Ed Asner shows up as a sheriff. Sheriff Muntz. 
and you could tell by that name that he's not a great guy. He's kind of a self-aggrandizing type guy who's like, well, let my guys check this out because maybe you didn't do such a great job. August finds a few interesting things here and there, and at one point, uh, when the uh, the report, bunch of reporters show up, and he has to kind of keep them away from the aunt or the sister-in-law, the next door neighbor, and and keep her away from the daughter. They begin to briefly discuss Marion Ord and what kind of person she was, and um, listen to this. Well, it's fortunate you live next door, at least for your niece's sake. It's no coincidence, Lieutenant. George arranged it. Marion was, well, Marion kept herself very busy. In other words, as a mother, she wasn't adequate. I didn't say that. I'd like to show you this first, rather than Mr. Ward. I found this in the bottom drawer of Mrs. Ward's bureau. It seemed to have been hidden. Would you mind? Sit down, Lieutenant. I didn't know that Marion kept trophies like this. So I think that's a really interesting scene because I think that Julie Harris's character doesn't necessarily like Marion and has some judgments about her, but I also think that she recognizes that Marion was probably a pretty good mother. I think it's a really kind of... Uh, Jenna Lee's character is very complex and interesting, but I, I think that they're really delicate with keeping her very human while also showing her flaws. August has basically found four photos of uh, Marion Janet Lee's character with four guys who aren't her husband. One of them is uh, Bill Foley, played by the great Bird Bedding, the star of The Incredible Melting Man. Um, one of them is Saul Gilman, played by Mark Richmond. Uh, Paul Durston is the third one. He's Well, Sal Gilman is a sort of uh, mobster. Uh, Paul Durston is an attorney. He's also the president of a sports club, which will become very important. That's right. Yeah, he's played by William Wyndham. Then there is a Reverend, I believe his name is Brian Hagen, played by I'm forgetting his name because it's Lawrence Dane. Lawrence Dane. Yes, it's he's, he's not in the um he's not in the first edition of uh, Merrill for some oh. reason. Merrill doesn't have him in the cast list. Yeah, these were four guys that at one point Marion had some dealings with. So basically, at this point, what we do in the movie is, uh, as sort of publicity mounts around this case, I, th I think August says it at one point, something along the lines of, you know, a wino gets killed in an alley, no one cares, but a beautiful woman, you know, goes missing in a pile of blood, then suddenly everyone wants to know what's going on. And the mayor is after August yeah. to uh, to figure out what's going on, and the, and the sheriff is being a jerk, and the, and the, and the, um, the all the reporters are there. And so August begins to just kind of go down the line. He goes to talk to the four guys and ask them what uh, they all knew about Marion. Also, at the same time, there are a couple of side things. One, uh, we are looking for Mr. Ord, George Ord, who, mm -hmm. is, who is a traveling salesman. And who we can't seem to find. He's supposed to be in Fresno, but we can't seem to find. And uh, eventually George shows up, and we learn that he is kind of less than ethical with his expense accounts. And he... Yeah, we should... We should clarify that that's George Ord. That's the husband. Yes. I'm sorry. George Ord, yes, is the husband. Um, there are a lot yeah. of people in the movie, folks. So George Ord is the husband, and he is uh, yeah, he's a traveling salesman. He has returned and is very worried about his wife. They, Everyone except Dan kind of thinks he's the chief suspect. 
but Dan isn't isn't convinced. He goes to Dan goes from guy to guy, basically trying to find out what they know about Marion, their relationship with Marion. The guys generally don't tell Dan too much, but we get flashbacks to each of sort of the last moments, more or less, and the relationships that they had with Mary. Not always. And they generally don't go well. And Marion turns out to be a really nice lady who has kind of no self-esteem at all and is worried that she's lost her looks and her sexiness and everything. And she goes to all these guys to try to boost that and and just get her confidence back and uh sometimes it's a little unpleasant like Saul Gilman trying to prostitute her sometimes it's a little weird like Bill Foley Berta Benning trying to I'm getting my own apartment you can come and stay with me and da 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 no you're Berta Benning you're gonna be in Melting Man soon no that's not gonna happen (laughs) and then and then sometimes though they're, they're they're they are a little more fun the preacher uh, Reverend Hagen, he runs the Church of Contemplation, which is a kind of bogus kind of thing. And she falls for it at first, getting involved in some sort of rummage sale. But then a little later, she yells at him a lot. Filthy, lecherous scum! Like all of them! Marion, please. Please what? What do you want now? I'm in love with you, don't you understand? I understand you're a fake, a filthy, lying fake. And that white coat you probably wear so nobody can see all the dirt that's underneath. We'll go away together. All that holy purity. You know what it is? Fear. That's all. Just fear. And I thought I could learn something from you. Become a better person or some junk like that. Well, I learned something, all right. I learned I'm a better person than you'll ever be because at least when I want sex, I'm honest about it. I came to you because I needed help. I thought I'd hit bottom. I'd become something for men to pass around like a dirty joke. Well, I didn't know how far down bottom really was. I really love that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great scene. Dan is, he's, he's, he's interviewing all these guys. He's trying to find, uh, he's, uh, Mr. Ord basically, when they go to finally kind of bring him in because the mayor is really getting pushy about you got to bring the husband in he did it uh mr ord kind of i don't know why i call him mr george kind of breaks out and punches a cop and takes off and there's a car chase and they end up arresting him and george isn't doing that great and then we have the 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 thing is the thing that kind of finally brings and this is probably my favorite scene in the movie possibly is that one of the last shred of george's alibi is that i had one meeting in fresno and no one else seems to know that he was in Fresno. But I had one meeting there, but my client never showed up. I waited there for two hours. The only person who might be able to identify me is Lillian Crane, the secretary. But they can't find Lillian. They eventually find Lillian, and she's with a bunch of friends getting high. And I want you all to listen to this scene and imagine Christopher George interviewing Lillian and tell me if you can guess who plays Lillian Crane. Your name's Lillian Crane. That's right. You're employed as a receptionist at the Antique Supply in Fresno. Yes. Were you working Friday, the 19th of February? Yes. Miss Crane, do you remember if George Ord was in your office Friday? He might have been there. But you can't swear to him. No. It could have been uh, Thursday or Wednesday. Besides, how do you expect me to remember him... Well, a man's life depends on what you remember, Miss Crane. Well, I guess that's his problem. 
Where'd you have lunch Friday? I brought my lunch. Where'd you eat it? There's a little park about a block from the office. And when you got back to the office, you were as high as a kite. I did my work. Well, you don't remember anything. Do you turn on every day, Miss Green? That is my business. Not anymore, it isn't. Mr. Thomas would be interested in knowing he has a pothead sitting outside of his office. Come on now, I'll lose my job. And Mr. Thomas knows my folks. He'll tell him. Well, I guess that's your problem. So we played that clip on our very first episode when we were picking out our three <laughs> yes. favorite TV movies. And the, I think the thing we all got stuck on, first of all, that's Linda Day, if you didn't recognize her voice. Yeah. She would soon become Linda Day George. They got they actually got married about five months after they made this film together, which is amazing. Um, but she's like, you'll tell my parents. And we're like, Linda, you're like 32 years old. Yes. Are you currently on Mission you, you Impossible or not? Be a- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, you you can take care of yourself, Marion. Yes. Or yeah. Lillian, I'm sorry. <laughs> and and I, the other thing about that is that, and I emailed Dan about it, is that what's so interesting is that um, Janet Lee plays a character named Marion, spelled slightly different than her name from Psycho, but then Linda Day plays Lillian Crane, which is the last name of Janet Lee's character in Psycho. Yes. So it's Marion Crane yeah. in this film, and it's kind of a neat, I don't think that's intentional, but it was kind of a neat little like, whoa, that's cool moment. Yeah. So they do arrest George. It, it comes out in the discussion that George knows all about the affairs. He he admits fully that that whatever it is his wife wants, he can't uh, he can't provide to her. So he kind of, I don't know that he helps her per se, but he doesn't. He always welcomes her back when she's gone away and had one of these affairs. Is this uh, is the latest affair the time when he finally snapped and, and killed her, or did one of the guys kill her, or was it the sister-in-law, or was it Eve Plum, or who was it? Who did it? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to stop right here. And yes, there are a few plot points like the body in the river that I didn't include just because we don't have an hour for me to uh, go over everything in this movie. But that's the basics behind House on Green Apple Road. Yeah, so um, I think that Dan has seen this movie a bunch of times. I've seen it a couple times. I don't think Nate has ever seen it. Um, Nate, this was your first time, right? Yes. And? The very first time I had watched it. And as you both know, um, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I'm not a huge fan of, like, police movies in general. Yes. Um, So I I must admit I wasn't terribly excited when uh, we were going to cover – you know, some police movies, but I was like, you know, I need to give it a fair shot and, and go in uh, blank. Uh, so I did. And I actually um, really, really liked uh, the, the house on Green Apple Road. I thought the opening was very jarring, you know, kind of yeah. seeing her like, you know, just a, just a little girl coming home and to, uh, that, that carnage and the blood everywhere. And just not knowing what happened there, uh, it's it's kind of a very startling opening. It kind of grabs you right from the very beginning. Yeah. And on a side note, though, Dan August, what that's an amazing name. I'm like, I bet you know Linda Day was just like Dan August. Yep, uh, yep. Mm. We're gonna get together after this. <laughs> and they did. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, he looks. Call- he's extremely handsome in this yes, movie. Yes. Yes. He. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> but I don't want to get too much into spoiler territory because it really it's a movie you don't want spoiled until you've uh, had a chance to see it. 
Um, but I just want to say that Janet Lee in, in this movie and all the, you know, scenes we see her in, you know, there's a lot of flashback scenes and stuff. I just think she's amazing in this movie. And there is just, there's a scene, um, in the movie where she's having kind of a breakdown and I was just kind of in awe. I was like, this is like unbelievable acting to me. It felt so genuine, like her rage and her pain and everything just seemed very real. Uh, I thought that was just a, such an – I watched that scene several times, actually, because I thought, God, this is just incredible acting going on right now. And I just thought she's incredible. But this movie has a great cast regardless. I love Julie Harris. Uh, loved her since Knott's Landing. Yes. Um, <laughs> Lily, is it Lily May? Was that her character? Yeah, Lily May Clemens. <laughs> But, um, yeah, Christopher George and, and, you know, even Linda Day, I mean, she um, is a scene stealer to me, and she's not in the movie much. But when she is, I was like, I mean, she felt like she was like a scene stealer. I thought she did excellent in this movie. I loved her uh, character. I love that clip that she played, too. Um, yeah, it's amazing. She's so good in it because I'm so used to her not having that kind of attitude. And yeah. Ever. And I'm she trying could, to think, in all the other movies I've seen her in, she she's, doesn't have an attitude quite like that. No, she's either screaming bastard or she's wearing, like, some beautiful black nighty and getting yes. murdered by Bill Paxton. <laughs> yes. yes. Now, you yes. know, I was totally thinking of mortuary <laughs> and pieces. <laughs> but that's what we always think of here yes. at the Meet yeah. for TV Mayhem show because we love our slashers, too. Yes. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I just uh, – this one gets a recommendation from me because I just – I thought the storyline was interesting. I found myself really wondering where this was going to end up going because I was like – I just kept going back and forth like, okay, I mean, is she dead? Is she not? Hmm. What did you think of the twist? Did it really – did it work for you? Um. Yes, it, it, it did. It, it, it was one of the scenarios that I thought – but I think that I had kind of shrugged it off and I had gone back to what I kept thinking the whole time. But, um, I mean, it did throw me when it finally came up. I was like, ah, oh, I should have stuck with that other idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's what, what's so interesting and what you brought up that I wanted to comment on real quick is that um, this is kind of a tour de force for Janet Lee. She did another TV movie the year before called... Um, Honeymoon with a Stranger with Eric Braden from Young and the Restless that I highly recommend that she's also really good in completely different character. But what I like is what you said is that it's so real and genuine. And I had said that when we were listening to the clips that she's flawed. She's doing things she shouldn't be doing, but she's doing them for very human, real reasons, things that a lot of women go through when they get to a certain age and maybe men as well. And there's such a reality to it. And it's also interesting that it's a cop movie that's, pretty much populated with all men with a couple of exceptions but in a way it's really a woman's film too because they're really dealing with a very relevant issue for women especially in the 70s when their identity was pretty much wrapped up in being the beautiful perfect wife and mother and and that's not always what women want or what will satisfy them and it gets really scary when they get to that point where they don't think that they have that identity anymore and even though her husband loved her it was really about what was going on inside of her and that's very delicate you know and it's so well done in this so like so this last time that i watched it it was very painful to watch these men just use and abuse her and um and it just hurts so bad especially 
when we get to the end and we find out about one of the men, he's just rotten to the core. He's rotten. And he treats all the women in his life poorly. And it's just unfortunate that she couldn't see what she had and also that she couldn't see enough of within herself. Um, and also I thought there was some... Not necessarily most of the guys, but I played the Lawrence Dane clip in particular because I actually think that his character, the preacher guy, was also a little sympathetic as well. I, I think he was also kind of mixed up in his own world and in his own con job. And he ended up sort of falling for her. But at the same time, she didn't come to him for that. She came to him. I'm sorry, we're getting into spoiler territory. But she came to him for, um, you know, to kind of find herself outside of being a sexual object and that didn't work work for her and it really kind of destroyed her and um and so anyway i think that this movie has it's like i wrote this article that hasn't gone online yet and i don't want to say too much about it yet but um i wrote a lot about melodrama and how people think melodrama is a woman's uh sort of technique or sort of literary technique or whatever and it's not it's it happens in men's productions too and this article that i read was talking about how soaps are melodramatic but so are shows like the a-team and magnum pi and it was this whole article about how melodrama appeals to both male and female audiences it's just that the type of programming it is where it's in a soap it's based in romance and when it's on magnum it's it's based in uh soldiers recovering from the war and fighting for justice right but it's it's about the sort of excessiveness of emotion and so that's what she represents but then the crime is also really excessive as well so you're seeing two different forms of melodrama being sort of mixed in and appealing to both the male and female audience and they did it so beautifully and i didn't mean to cut everybody off i'm sorry nate go on you just reminded me when you're talking about her character <laughs> that i want to say that well i mean i i totally get what you're saying i mean um uh i just i th there was so much realism from it that i just you know I mean, it was just great dialogue i mean i you know, she sold it like with her performance, but I'm like, I thought the dialogue was really well done as well. I mean, it was yes. it's a really well done movie. I can actually see why it was very popular and spawned a TV series, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I really, really liked it. Um, like I said, the opening scene is one that really sticks with you. It does with me anyway. Yeah, for sure. It's it's kind of iconic, actually, in like sort of the history of TV movies. People who saw it of a certain age always remember that opening scene. It's just to me, it's kind of the juxtaposition of like such a bright sunny day, and like a girl innocently going into her house, and then just suddenly like coming across all this like you know, broken glass and everything, and and all the blood and and stuff. It's it, it almost reminds me in a way of the opening to the stepfather, where mm, yeah. he's getting ready, and then yeah. he comes downstairs and slowly reveals the the death and everything, the deaths. Well, What's also so interesting is that she's totally oblivious to the fact that, that it's a scene of violence. To her, it's just like a really messy kitchen that you plumb character. And she just goes to her aunt's house and it's like, the house is kind of a mess, auntie, whatever. And and it, it was a scene of a murder. You know what I mean? And and she's so innocent that it's, it goes over her head what she's walked into. So that makes it even scarier because when you see her in that room, you're kind of like, oh, my God, is, are they whoever did this, are they still in the house, right? You know, with this little yeah. girl alone. Yeah, it's really suspenseful. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I really liked it, so I was glad that you picked it. So that's Yay! My Yay! Two cents. <laughs> okay. okay, Dan? I just want to start off with, this is one of those movies that I, I could throw out a, a thousand different things about. Stuff like the fact that William Wyndham is in it, and this is the same year, 1970, that he plays Haskell Weeks in my favorite Robert Altman film, Brewster McLeod 
which is awesome. And one of the things I, I love is that Dan August's partner, Charlie, is played by Keenan Wynn. Which I absolutely, uh, which I absolutely, it's something like when the Dan August series started, it was Burt Reynolds, and I believe his partner was Norman Fell. So I think there's something. Yeah, that's about, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would like it, like if at the end of the '70s they did another Dan August TV movie, and it was like, I don't know, like say like Greg Evigan was Dan August, and like Don Knotts was his partner, or something like that. <laughs> you know, that's very Freeze Company. Of <laughs> and, and but but Keenan Wynn is is great in the movie, and there's a point when they go to talk to Sal in the sports club. Sal is getting oh, a little yes. pushy. Sal's getting a little pushy, and Dan kind of pushes back, and one of Sal's goons steps forward, and Keenan Wynn just slams him up against the locker. Just pushes him right up against the locker, and the guy doesn't move. And you're like, yes! Uh, so, um, <laughs> so, so this is actually a movie I, when we first, when I, when I first started talking to you, uh, back five years ago, I believe, I don't. I think I probably went on your site and I I saw you mentioned uh, anyone who's interested in TV movies should get a copy of Merrill, and so I got a copy of yes. the original. The original, and in the original, it's done uh, chronologically as as broadcast, and each each movie is numbered. So your first movie is obviously see how they run. Uh, House on Green Apple Road is number sixty three in the TV movie wow. world, and the thing that grabbed me about it is one I love the cast. And there's a picture of Julie Harris, Eve Plum, and Christopher George there. But the thing, that, the thing that really made me want to see it immediately, and this is going to sound stupid, is the fact that it was two and a quarter hours. It was in a time slot that I'd never really seen before for a movie. I'm a big fan of, like, double albums when bands used to do double albums and um, – uh, episodes of television shows that are like if there's an hour long show a 90 minute episode or a two hour episode or something like that I like when things are a little bit off what they're supposed to be and so just the thought that this movie is going to be 10 to 15 minutes longer than your average TV movie made me interested and so I watched it and I loved it I think I think it's it's well written it's well mounted well produced well cast it's just it's just well done all the, all the way around the board. And the great thing about it is that it is as strong as Dan August is in it, there does hit a point in it where you almost kind of leave the cop adventure behind and it becomes all about Janet Lee's character. And you're just learning about yeah. Janet Lee's character. And occasionally you get the bits of the drama coming in to it. And I, and I like that, that the movie was not afraid to just let let her character and her what she's going through even if it is in flashback um overtake the movie which i which i really liked and i i don't know if i i I know if that's brave per se but i think that's that's interesting storytelling and i don't i don't know i i don't know the novel that this is based on but i imagine it's a pretty decent one um from what we've seen in this movie i mean i can't imagine they all sat around going like hey i just read this crappy novel you want to make a movie out of it i imagine it's pretty good (laughs) so 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 i i'd like i i wouldn't mind i wouldn't mind reading it but yeah this i mean this is the time of christopher george's um trifecta of tv movies that became shows or all pilots right Yes, the year before was The Immortal, uh, which I covered on Eventually Super Train, all 15 episodes in the TV movie. That's a fun show. It's not as good as House on Green Apple Road, uh, to be honest. And then the year after this was The Incredible Escape, 
which is pure screwball. But this House on Green Apple Road is probably the most um, normal and probably the one you could show most people, I think, and um, really sort of interest them and, and get them, like, draw them into the drama, the human drama. And, and uh, I, 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 just, I just adore it. I think it's a fantastic movie. I've watched it about five times now, and I did get the Dan August set from VEI, and finally I was able to watch a copy of House on Green Apple Road that didn't have like a gross green or yellow tint. Yeah. You watch it and you go, oh, this is, no, ugh. And so, yeah, it looks really nice on the DVD. It's not high def or anything, but it looks really nice. And you get the colors, and like, the, I'm, the, I've got it here on here right now. The Church of Contemplation has this really weird sort of purpley-violet thing out front, and it's 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 really nice. So I recommend it if you're a fan, and I recommend the movie if you're a TV movie fan. I think this is this is just one of the best that uh, the whole not just the genre of cop TV movies, but the whole genre. Is it a genre or of TV movies has to offer? The TV movie? I, yeah, I can call it a genre. I wanted okay. to just, since you're talking about the transfer real quick, um, something that I think people should buy it just to really see it, because if you watch it through the bootlegs that have been around, through that sort of pea soup color, you're going to miss a lot of the beautiful sort of subtle artwork. Uh, what do you call the art direction or cinematography? Cause there's this really great scene towards the beginning where Ed Asner, I believe it's Ed Asner's character is standing outside the house that Marion's disappeared from. And inside the house, of course we know it's covered in blood, the kitchen and there's dishes everywhere and it's a wreck and somebody's probably been murdered. And then, but the camera is from the garden and you see this one red rose in the corner and then you see Ed Asner on the other side, and it's sort of like, not to call Ed Asner ugly because he's not, but it's like the beauty amongst the ugly, but they mean the ugly in the house, right? And so there's there's things like that happening in the photography that I think you can easily overlook when you're looking at a really bad transfer. And that's too bad because you can see that a lot of TV movies, I think I have a feeling House on Green Apple Road got a little bit more time to finesse itself than a lot of TV movies get. Mm -hmm. But um, they sp it's very meticulous in how it's put together even visually um and so it's, i'm so glad that somebody finally kind of cleaned it up and put it out so that people can appreciate the thought that went behind just the the framing and the photography of the film because it's really really lovely yeah and i haven't watched any of the dan august episodes yet but i'm i will now just to see the young burt reynolds you know i i know, mainly know him from smoking the bandit and beyond so this is uh, this will be fun <laughs> um, yeah, so this is like my third time seeing it, and I feel like every time I watch it, it gets more... It's more of an emotional ride for me. I've, I'm so drawn to Janet Lee's character whenever I watch this. I, I guess the older I get, the more I relate to it. Um, although she was probably younger than me, the character when she made this, but um, but it really it really is indicative of women in that time period and and how they probably felt sort of backed up against a corner in terms of what they could offer the world um, just based on physical appearance and or, you know, the type of lifestyle maybe that they lived, meaning that are they middle class, you know, how do they dress? Everything is about your appearance and nothing is about how you feel as a person. And this, you know, I'm a, I didn't actually look up the screenwriter of this. I did. I can't remember his name. It's Dan something, I think, or maybe that's uh, George, the guy wrote the novel, but it's um, George, George Eckstein or Eckstein. And that's it. That's it. Um, it's so um, sensitive to the plight of the woman of that era. 
I think that's really interesting because I find that a lot of people sometimes we're, we're in this whole new movement of women uh, making films and having their own voices. And that's so incredible, but there were male writers who could write very intuitively for women too. John Carpenter probably being one of the best examples of that. But, um, I think that this guy was also very sensitive to to it. And it is interesting that it is sort of a balance between this woman's life in a very private way and then sort of the public view of her disappearance with uh, Dan August pursuing the crime. And so it's it's just really well done. It's really well balanced. And, and um it's just a kind of a lovely film, you know. I think the drama is really intriguing, and I think the acting is really amazing. And I think I love Lawrence Dane. I'm not going to lie. I think I love him. I think he's really kind of a standout in this because I think he's so tortured. I think the other guys are really jerky, but he is so tortured. And I feel for him when I'm watching it. And I know him only as, like, the older guy from, like, Happy Birthday to Me and, like, um, Rituals. And so it's kind of, it took me a while to actually figure out who the actor was because I recognized his voice, but I'd never seen him with dark hair. So I, was I like, did I, not make that connection. Yeah, it's Lawrence Dane. And so I was like, I know that guy. Who is that? And then finally I had to break down and look it up. And I was like, ah, that's why, because he has dark curly hair. But I think he's, I think, you know, there's a ton of great actors in this, but for some reason, Lawrence Dane, of the people that aren't Janet Lee, Lawrence Dane to me stands out as the other actor that I find really compelling. And I do think that Christopher George is really good because he's playing a part where you, you know nothing about Dan August from the beginning, middle, or end. You know really nothing about his life. He's just this guy pursuing this case. But, I mean, there are things about him that you know are good. Like, so for instance, there's a really good scene where Ed Asner is pretty sure that this black guy killed Marion because he delivered groceries to her house and of course being a black guy in a predominantly white neighborhood and already having a record because it wasn't even really a record I think they found out that he had been molested and, or tried to somebody tried to molest him and he attacked the guy and it ended up being a report and so Ed, Ed Asner called it a record quote unquote and so he just decided that since this was the last guy to see Marion he must be the culprit so he goes to ask him some questions and the kid freaks out the this grocery delivery boy and he runs to the top of this like water tower or some kind of thing like that and he's terrified and he's stuck up there and Asner's just basically going to let him lay up, stand up there until he's so tired he's either going to fall off or come down and he's basically torturing this kid who's sweating bullets by the way and Christopher George comes and he's very compassionate and he goes and gets the kid and he says we're not going to do anything to you except apologize and so in that scene, I think you get a general idea of the type of person Dan August is, but you don't know if he's married. You don't know anything about him. You don't know what part of town he lives in. You don't know what he used to do. Um, you don't know if he's worked in other departments or if he's um, had other careers, anything. You know nothing about him, but he's still a really solid character because Christopher George, I think the thing about Christopher George, and we talked about this before, is that no matter what you put him in, he's always 100% there. And, yeah. like, there's this really great episode of Charlie's Angels. I think it's Angels on Skis, and where they go to the ski resort. And he's this agent, you know what I'm talking about? And he's looking for his dead partner or his partner's missing or whatever. And he's standing in the Angel's office, and he's very upset about what's happening, and he's got this kind of monologue. And it's so good. And I'm not saying that people on Charlie's Angels weren't great actors, but he's this wonderful actor who's showing up on a show for, like, you know, he's paying his dues or whatever. He's getting paid to be on Charlie's Angels. And he's 110% in that character. And that's the kind of actor he was. Well, I, I always 
think with uh, the scene in uh, Gates of Hell or City of the Living Dead, oh. uh, where where the woman is in the coffin and C- Katrina McCall and she begins yes. to make the noise and you know he grabs the pickaxe and instead of you know you know putting it in the side of the coffin and lifting it open he begins to <laughs> slam it through the coffin and almost get her in the face and the thing is because I like him so much and I'm so convinced by him it wasn't until like the second time I watched it where I was like why are you doing that. You know, the first time it was like, well, that's how that's how you do it. You break air holes in there to try to let her breathe and, and see what was going on. You know, that's Fulci logic. But but I bought it the first time I saw it. Now, maybe I was probably 12 the first time I saw it. But still, you know, he's he's in all the way. Yeah, no, he, he had just has a presence that it's it's hard to duplicate. And um, he's just so wonderful. And, and he did get dropped into kind of a thankless role of being sort of the narrator in a way of the story. And um, and yet he's still a full he's fully structured as a character what's the word i want to use he's fully dimensional he's three-dimensional without having anything to go with yeah it's just he works and he's perfect he's perfectly cast and i i think i think they do one of those things too where his boss the the chief there it's it's the mayor doesn't seem to like august but he doesn't know august but the chief who is august's direct boss has like a hundred percent respect and uh, agrees with goes with him a hundred percent and there's something about sort of when the boss shows up and you think oh boy it's the chief august is going to have trouble with the chief but the chief is like hey dan what are you doing how can i help you know and there's something about like the respect of the fact that you you get to the point of lieutenant and Columbo used to have that too you would get episode you would rarely see Columbo's boss but there would be moments when people were like yes. you know I, I went and talked to your boss and I told him to take you off the case yeah you know what my boss doesn't like people doing that so he came to me and said I could do whatever I want I forget that's in one of the episodes but I like just just the sort of the chain of command whether you it's something you uh, respect or not there is something about the his superior uh not superior but the next in line there allowing him to do his job that i think makes the viewer respect him more and the fact that his uh keenan win who i think is one step below him respects him so much too so it's like everyone gives yeah everyone everyone respects the way he does his business that you respect if if it was one of those things where like you know, he's kind of a jerk or he's a rebel and he's, you know, then you'd have to pause for a moment to see if he did it right. But the fact that you, you accept him a little bit better, I don't know, even though you don't, like you said, you don't really know much about him. I mean, you know more about Sergeant Friday in Dragnet than you do uh, Lieutenant August. And there all we knew with Friday was that he had a mom, you know, who he lived with. And that was right. Yeah. Yeah. You know nothing, but it doesn't matter because you still see him as a full person, and so and that's that's great acting, right? That's to go in there with so little and to make so much. And this is a really weird comparison, but it makes me think of Betsy Palmer in Friday the Thirteenth because what she did, and I, I don't know if Christopher George did this, I don't know anything about acting, but you know she came up with the whole backstory for Mrs. Voorhees that's very poignant, you know, and very serious and and very uh, real. And and I kind of have a feeling that Christopher George probably had Dan August pretty much figured out for himself and then brought that to the character so that his history was already there. We just didn't hear it, but it's inside the actor. Do you know what I mean? That's the impression yeah. I got. No, yeah. I, so, yeah, I, so I, basically he's Mrs. Voorhees. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he's Mrs. Voorhees. I'm in. I buy it. I buy it. What other percent? So, so while we have Nate, 
so should we do like a go ahead and put up a big spoiler warning here? Do you guys want to talk about the twist and the people can just fast forward a few minutes if they don't want to hear it? I think that would sure. be a good idea. Sure. sure. Okay, because I do think that Nate's right that you should go into this movie blind, but at the same time, I think the twist is really, really great. And I would like to talk about it. Also, I think, though, if for me... So we're going to start spoiling it here. For me, it points out kind of a flaw in the film. And I don't think it denigrates the film at all. I don't think I like it less. But so basically, and I'll just do this real quickly. So basically, we find out through... So at the beginning, Dan had aptly pointed out that they found these grocery receipts, which leads to the bag boy, but was also, which also I think is the main clue that uh, Dan August uses to figure out what happened to Janet Lee's character. And I can't remember exactly how he does it, but he ends up back at that club that the lifeguard was at that she was having the affair with. He goes into that room that the lifeguard used to live in, and he sees that there's things there like milk and I think orange juice and some food, and it looks pretty fresh. And so he um, starts looking around, and he goes into the bathroom, and he pulls back the shower curtain, and Marion Ord is in huddled in the corner of the shower looking terrified and also with some marks on her face. And so he gets her kind of out of there and she's sitting on the couch and she confesses to what happened that day on Green Apple Road. And what she said was basically that uh, William Wyndham's character, and I can't remember the character's name, but he's the guy that was over, he was the president of the sports club. He was married and his wife was the one that actually saw uh, Janet Lee with the lifeguard and had kind of told on them. And you get the impression as you're watching all this that William Wyndham probably had an affair with Marion as well. And um, it turns out that she had fallen for him. She tells him that she's ready to leave her husband. He comes to visit her on Green Apple Road, and she says, you know, I'm ready. I want to leave my husband. I want to be with you. I love you. And he's a total asshole to her. He's just yeah. the worst kind of person on the planet. And he just rips her heart out so painfully. And so they get into the scuffle, and she kills him, right? And so where I think the flaw in this film is that we don't really see them together in any kind of gentle, romantic way. So I can't really understand why Marion would fall for him. And when all these other guys, not all of them, but I think the lifeguard and I think that the preacher both kind of really liked her. And I don't get it from William Wyndham, so it's hard for me to believe that she would give up everything for this guy, but maybe she maybe she had an issue and she wanted to be with a guy who treated her really poorly. I don't know. But for me, the I think that that's the only part, because I don't necessarily get where the love comes from. I get where the rage comes from, but I don't, I, I don't get where that sort of love comes from. So for me, that's kind of a failing mm. in the film, but not to the point where I think it makes it not a good film at all. Like it's still great, but that's just one part where I go, why Marion? I, you know, let's sit down for a minute, Marion. Let's talk this yeah, out yeah. because I don't, I don't understand where that comes from. But anyway, um, but I thought it was a really great twist because I don't think I thought she was still alive at all. I was pretty sure it was going to be one of those guys. I didn't think it was her husband, but I did think it was going to be one of those men um, that she'd had the affair with. So uh, the first time I saw it, it was kind of shocking to see her like that. And also like beat up and uh, what she went through the ringer. Um, It's a very, very traumatic scene to watch. But um, anyway, uh, I think it's a, I still think it's a really solid twist. It's just, I don't necessarily understand where they got there to that point. But anyway, that's my two cents on it. Um, Dan, what did you think of the twist? I, I like the twist. I, I didn't see it coming. Cause I think I got sort of lost in the, the, the Janet Lee's character, her drama and everything. Yes. And there was a point where I was like, it almost became one of those things where it was like, does it really matter? 
at the end. I mean, I guess it does because it's a it's a cop TV movie. But you, you almost kind of I almost set it set that aside and just wanted to learn more about her and the relationship right. with her husband and everything else and how her daughter uh, got through this and every uh, everything else. It almost becomes. Uh, more of a uh, yeah, sort of a psychodrama, family drama. I don't mean it's psycho. Sorry about that. Uh, you you know what I mean, kind of drama. And um, but but when it happened, uh, he, when he goes to the sports club and it happens, and you see her in the shower, my first thought was, has she been in the shower the whole time? And my second <laughs> thought was, oh my gosh, she is not doing well. And, and I'm so glad it was Dan who found her. Yeah. Because if, yeah, he's he's the right one to do that. And yeah, I, I liked it. I thought it worked out well. And you, you are right. You are, I think you're absolutely right, though, that there isn't really a scene. And I'm wondering if it got lost from the translation from the, the novel to the teleplay, some bit of yeah. info. It could, what it could be is maybe she, be, when we see her with Bird Benning earlier, it's it's uh, William. Uh, I, I got to get their names. I'm sorry. So it's I think it's Paul's. Paul's the guy she kills, and it's her husband. I think it's Paul. I hope the guy she kills her. His wife gets her thrown out of the sports club by yes, tattletailing, right. basically, like you said. And I'm wondering if it's something where the reason why she goes after William Wyndham's character is to get back at the wife. I don't know. That seems that's the only thing I could oh. think of. Like. Like I really love that sports club. How dare you get me thrown out of there? I'm going to go after your husband. <laughs> and and so sort of so, so, sort of like all the time she's been with these guys and they promised the world and given nothing in return. Maybe she was promising the world to to him with the intention of giving nothing, just hurting him and and her, the wife. But it became a stabby thing, unfortunately. It did. <laughs> it yeah. did. Yeah, that was unfortunate for everybody involved. <laughs> Nate, what did you think of the uh, the twist? Uh, I really liked the twist. Um, I, I did kind of go back and forth as to whether she was dead or not or maybe faked her death. But then I was like, if she faked her death, then whose blood is it? Right. Because, you know, I didn't – I wasn't thinking too much about her killing somebody. I was thinking yeah. that she found a way to fake her own death, but then I couldn't understand the whole blood thing. And, well, I saw something on a TV show once where someone was, like, over the course of time taking blood out of their body and building up a bunch. And then they took all that blood and splashed it everywhere and then oh. left town. <laughs> so I that kept thinking familiar. about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I kept thinking about that. And so that's why I was unsure of of maybe if she had just faked her death. I really didn't see it coming that she'd killed somebody, though. But the scene to me is just an incredible scene uh, because I just think she conveys the whole like emotion of like shock and, and disbelief at how he starts treating her and then going into like suddenly that pain. It's almost like like. You know, she stabbed she stabbed him literally, literally, but um, he stabbed her in the heart like figuratively first because I think yes. she was in that much pain that she just like went into a blind rage. Definitely a crime of passion. Yeah, I agree with that. I was thinking that it was sort of like, and it was a buildup. I don't think it was just his rejection. I think it was all these men, and it just finally like got to the breaking point for her because in a way she destroyed her own life in the process too because what. 
one affair happens, right? But then like four guys down the road, you know what I mean? And not a huge amount of time. She's really like self-destructive already. And she's having a lot of problems and, and to have every guy sort of mess her up in a different way, it's just eventually going to get to a point where it's just going to burst open and nobody knows what that's going to look like. And it just happened to burst open near, you know, a knife or whatever. So like yeah. it, it was going to lead up to that. So he wasn't the only, I agree with you. It was him literally him figuratively doing something to her, stabbing her, but it was also like just so many men doing that over and over again. And it just kind of exploded in this crazy out of control thing that happened to her. And it was tragic. You know what I mean? You really feel for her. Wasn't, was, was it Janet Lee that was in the Columbo, the forgotten lady? The, the one where she, uh, she kills her husband and she wants to be the dancer. But she doesn't remember it. Yes. Yes. And she's in the, she's in her screening room and she sneaks out of the screening room. Yeah. That one's a heartbreaker. That one's a a heartbreaker. That's her, right? That's the same actor. Yeah. She's so, she's, she's just so delicate. There's just something about her that's so sympathetic, you know? But isn't, isn't that the one though, where she like, you see her like, go out of like the second story window and swing on the branch and leap down and then Columbo does it later and just like flops around a lot I think that's that one I could be wrong on that she has a sense of fun too she should have had an affair with Columbo because I think things would have worked out a lot better that's an episode (laughs) yeah his his wife would never have found out you know Kate Mulgrew oh my god that would have been a mess yeah but uh, (laughs) okay that's a whole other TV movie but um, yeah so so yeah so I like the twist I just I just can't figure out why I mean I like William Wyndham myself don't get me wrong I love him but like I don't understand why she loves him so much can I ask you one thing about the opening credits that I just noticed this time but the last time I watched it Yes. In, in the in because you see it becomes like a psychedelic opening credit sequence, and you see like um uh, silhouettes of knives and things, and at certain points you see a, a woman fighting a man, and it's the scenes oh. that you see later on of her and William Wyndham fighting, and and it's funny as I I didn't actually notice that until like the fourth time I watched it. I don't know why. I don't know if I was looking at the names on the screen or just thinking, okay, these are credits, let them go. Okay. But I'm I'm wondering like to some well, to someone who doesn't know what's going on, like would that be like sort of a giveaway that that's I, I mean, if, you know you know something happened. If you're paying attention, but I didn't notice it and I watched it like three okay. times. Okay. And you didn't notice it till the fourth time. Yes, yeah, I'm a jerk. Wow, yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's something. But um, so while we have Nate here, why don't I go ahead and do the background? Because I think we're kind of done with it. Do you guys think so? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So we all really like this movie. It is on DVD now, so everybody should go see it. Um, and uh, I know that we could have talked about all of the actors in it in depth. Um, because yes. we didn't really give Keenan love or Ed Asner the love that they deserve. But um, but. They'll come along in other things, and we will. So um, so let me just give you the background. So this originally aired on January 11th, 1970 on ABC. It ran against on CBS the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour and an episode of Mission Impossible. So it's funny. I don't know if Linda Day was in that episode. Um, and then on NBC, it was Bonanza and The Bold Ones. Uh, the, so, you know, The Bold Ones had several different kind of series. It was sort of, I guess, an umbrella, right? Like the Sunday mystery movie. Yeah. And so they the had, like, doctors. And, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, the lawyers. So this one was called The Protectors. I'm not that familiar with it. So oh. it was the Bull Ones, colon, The Protectors, which starred Leslie Nielsen and is about a DA and a sheriff teaming up on different kinds of legal matters. This episode was called The Carrier, which was about somebody who was sort of a typhoid Mary. So I don't know how that's a legal matter, but okay. Um, this was based <laughs> if, on... If Leslie Nielsen it was in it, it was hilarious. You know that. It must have been hilarious, just like prom night. <laughs> So, oh, so, so, this, so this was based on Harold Daniels' novel um, of the same name. The character's name in the book, though, was actually Dan Nalen, or Nalen, N-A-L-O-N. Cecil Smith of the LA Times reported about something that happened between – this was a Quinn Martin production, which we forgot to mention. Quinn Martin and uh, I think ABC had a huge kind of falling out, and I think there was a court case even maybe. And um, – the House in Green Apple Road was, according to Cecil Smith of the LA Times, was the TV movie that reportedly caused this rift between ABC and Quinn Martin. And um, so Quinn Martin was one of the primary suppliers producing um, films for the ABC network. After some two years of controversy, the film finally was shown on Sunday night, which means that it was made two years before it aired, which would put it at 68. And then it says here it was slipped in without fanfare into ABC's Sunday night of the movie, Sunday night at the movie's time slot. And then Cecil Smith does review it here. He wrote, it was a routine melodrama, generally inferior in script, direction and performance to the sort of thing Martin's company had turned out in weekly shows like The Fugitive and The FBI. Cecil Smith doesn't know what he's talking about. Then he continues to say the play offered Christopher George in an inept and wooden performance as a detective investigating the murder of a sluttish suburban housewife played by Janet Lee. Miss Lee was shown mostly in flashbacks in her underwear, either crawling in or out of bed with various men in her life. There was no corpse, just a blood spattered grisly kitchen. And in a climax, which a two year old could see coming from the middle of the picture, Miss Lee turned out to be not the murderer, but the not the murdered but the murderer so he spoiled it Whoa. and then he went on to say yeah martin surrounded george with a cast of top actors among them oh we forgot to mention one of them julie harris william windham keenan Wynn, barry sullivan tim o'connor mark richmond and walter pigeon we didn't mention walter pigeon oh, yeah. and then cecil ended his review by saying they were wasted oh. wow guys that sounds like every single slasher film review from the early 1980s. No, no. no. Oh, yes, it does. Oof. I mean, wow, he, yeah. he did like everything we just talked about. He poo pooed all over, like in 1970. But what's, what's interesting about the article, and I think why I pulled it, was that that the House on Green Apple Road was actually made in 1968, which That's sort true. of makes sense because. Because Christopher George had made three pilots, right? So we talked about them, The Escape, which was also known as The Magician, and The Immortal, and House on Green Apple Road. But you know, Quinn Martin asked Christopher George to play Dan August in the TV series, but he had already signed on to The Immortal. So that kind of makes oh, sense, because The Immortal sense. was the year yeah. before. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually, and then, I'm, look, I'm looking at the DVD right now, and yet on the final screen, copyright 1968 by Quinn Martin yeah. Productions. Right, I didn't really realize that till I just read this because I grabbed the article, but I didn't really pay attention to what I was grabbing. So I'm glad I grabbed it. But um, he, so you know, and I think this is already in my background, so I'll probably read it twice. But uh, Quinn Martin went to Christopher George, and they're like, "We'd really like you to be in the Dan August TV series." And he was like, "I can't do it. I'm already, I'm already doing this, and this is the pilot I choose. I want to do the Immortal." And I know this guy named Burt Reynolds, and I think he's perfect for the role. So Christopher George actually recommended uh, Burt Reynolds 
to the part of Dan August. And if you've read my book, you know, I did the part about uh, TV movie mashups where they took episodes of TV shows and made them into TV movies. And so when Dan August originally aired, it, it kind of came and went. And then Burt Reynolds did Deliverance like a year later or two years later and his other stuff. And he became really famous. So then a couple seasons after Deliverance, the network cobbled together the Dan August episodes and made them into TV movies or they reran them and then they made them into TV movies I think in 1980 to capitalize on Burt Reynolds career so they took the end credits out of the first episode and the beginning credits out of the second episode and just put them together and then aired them as TV movies so anyway uh, that's just a little more TV movie history about the Dan August show so I thought this was interesting too so did you know that for a short period of time Christopher George actually worked as a private eye and seemed to enjoy playing cops and detectives because of his experience being a detective I thought that was fascinating. No, no, no I didn't. Yeah. The only actor to make it to the TV movie, from the TV movie to the series, was Ned Romero, who played Sergeant Joe Rivera. By the way, I'm not sure I'm familiar with Ned Romero, but he is gorgeous. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so, like, Linda, Linda Day married Christopher just a few months after this uh, film's original airing. Just a, I meant to do more on Quinn Martin, but I didn't have time. But Quinn Martin was born named Erwin Martin Cohn in New York City. He began his career as a film editor at MGM before becoming an executive producer at Desilu Studios. He ended up marrying a writer for I Love Lucy. So I didn't know I Love Lucy had women writers, but they did. And Quinn Martin married yeah. one. Um, yeah, one of them. Was, yeah, one of them was a writer, Madeline Pugh, Pugh or something like that. I, I think. think Right. Yeah. In 1960, he established QM Productions, producing such high-profile series as The Fugitive, of course, which has our David Jansen connection because he's coming up next, The FBI, The Streets of San Francisco, Canon, etc. But he also produced several interesting TV movies, including The Face of Fear, which is, I think, not the Tracy Gold movie we talked about, but the one with Ricardo Montalban and maybe Elizabeth Ashley. I can't remember who the actress is, but it's about a woman who thinks she's dying, so she hires a hitman. I'm pretty sure this is the TV movie. She hires a hitman to kill her, and then she finds out that she was misdiagnosed, Oh. and she can't get the hitman to kill her, so she ends up hiring Ricardo Montalban to find the hitman. It's pretty good. Then he did a movie called Murder or Mercy, which had a really famous actor in it. Now I'm drawing a blank. Oh, my gosh. And so I'll just go on. He did The City. He did a TV movie called Force of Evil with Lloyd Bridges, and I think he Plum is in that as well. Um, and he did something called Brinks the Great Robbery. Uh, and, of course, like I said, he also uh, – oh, I talked about his TV movies that he did with Dan August, who created a series of TV movies with the TV series. The director was Robert Day. Robert Day also directed Ritual of Evil, which was a sequel to Fear No Evil, which was one of the very first TV horror movies, which starred Louis Jordan. Also, he was in both of them. with several TV shows. Uh, Robert Day was a British filmmaker who had a wide and varied career. He directed four Tarzan movies and two Boris Karloff movies. He directed The Haunted Strangler and Corridors of Blood. He was born in Sheen, England, and he began his career as a clapper and then as a camera operator in his home country, working for such directors as Michael Anderson, Carol Reed, and Guy Hamilton on films wow. including something called Paratrooper, which is Alan Ladd, and An Inspector Calls with Alastair Sim. I think I got that from his obituary. Um, his TV movie career was incredible. He directed some really true classics, including The Initiation of Sarah, and a movie that I almost paired House on Green Apple Row with called Murder by Natural Causes, which we're going to get to. It's oh, a yeah. Levinson Link uh, yeah. movie. 
Fantastic. Uh, and here's a quote from Robert Day on working on low-budget films. He said, quote, that's the interesting thing that happens with these low-budget movies. That's why so often directors make their best movies when they don't have that much money. They have their imagination instead. And that's probably why he was so good on these TV movies. There we are. Thank you guys for uh, doing this one with me. I know, Nate, that was a long one, um, this episode. So uh, the How's a Green Apple Road, I mean, watching that movie was over two hours long, and I'm glad you stuck it out and really enjoyed it. Yeah. I was too. I was very happy about that. But I think you have to go, don't you? Yeah, unfortunately. But I will do five minutes with Nate on Smile, Jenny. You're dead. Oh, cool. I can't wait to do another five minutes with Nate because it's been forever and yeah. it needs to happen. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, cool. So we're going to say goodbye to you and then we're going to roll on through this. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye, bye, Nate. Nate. All right. Bye. bye. Okay, so you ready to get started? I am. Okay, let's do it. Dan. This one begins with uh, Mr. Harry Orwell. Harry O. He's a retired cop. He has a bullet in his back. He does private detective work. He doesn't really have a car that works that great, so normally he takes the bus. He lives right on the beach, and he is spending all his time building, fixing up a boat called The Answer. The uh, movie begins with him uh, going out in the morning to do his morning exercises, and there's a gal named Liberty, played by Jodie Foster, out there. She's, uh, I don't know how old she is here, like 11, 12, something like that, and she's a runaway, and she's sassy, and and, and, and Harry kind of lets her hang out there for a while. Intercut with time spent on the beach, we meet, and there's a lot of, Harry O does a lot of narration, so he begins to narrate the story of uh, Jennifer, as in Smile, Jenny, you're dead. And Jennifer is sort of living with a guy named, the, uh, mainly the Colonel, who's a much um, older guy, uh, uh, person than she is. Uh, Jenny's a model, and uh, she is going to work uh, one morning, and she meets up with, with her husband, it gets a little complicated, folks. She's living with the colonel, more or less, who is her... I guess she's having an affair with, although her and her husband, Charlie, aren't really together anymore. But Charlie is what we call a big jerk. And he will not, <laughs> he give, her a he will not give her a divorce. And he's not very friendly to her. And in fact, their discussion, which is in like the middle of a huge like open public space ends with him slapping her. And the moment he slaps her, the colonel is suddenly there and sees what's going on. It's like, oh boy, whoa, this guy's a real jerk. Now, as all this is going on, and as Harry more or less tells Liberty, you know, you, you got to take off. You, you can't hang around here, and Liberty kind of leaves. We also meet the character Roy St. John, who also saw Charlie slap Jennifer. 
Roy St. John is played by Zalman King. If you know who Zalman King is, you'll know how creepy Roy might be. Roy is obsessed <laughs> with Jennifer, or Je I, I guess I'll call her Jenny. Roy is obsessed with Jenny. He he lives, I believe, he lives across the way from, I think, is it the Colonel's apartment? I got a little confused as to what apartment he was no, across that's from. A is it her good apartment? question. I'm not sure. That's a good question. Oh, I'm not sure. Okay, because they say at one point that Jennifer, Jenny has her own apartment, but we first see her at the Colonel's apartment. And basically, he has this whole, um, I'm sorry, uh, Zalman King Roy has this whole array of cameras and things. And he's constantly taking pictures of Jenny, and he's constantly following her around and taking pictures. Imagine sort of um, Michael Myers lurking in the background of Halloween. That's kind of yes. what Roy does, except he's Zalman King, so he has this big hair, and he's, he's, he's much more, whoa, hey, kind of thing. And he's constantly taking pictures, of, and he's obsessed with her. And like I said, she's a model, so you see her doing some of her you know, bits, bits and things, and, you know, um, uh, kind of standing there looking like, mm, she's doing the faces. I'm doing faces right now, folks, but she's modeling a lot. <laughs> and, and what happens is that Roy has seen Charlie – the husband slapped Jennifer, and he decides it's time for Charlie to die. And he ends up shooting Charlie in an elevator. And then at that point, Jennifer's father, who Harry used to work with, who I believe is named Colonel... No, not Colonel. He's Lieutenant... He's Lieutenant like detect Humphrey. Yeah, Lieutenant. Lieutenant. He's Lieutenant... Kenner, or I think is his name. We'll call him Lieutenant. Contacts Harry and says, "Hey Harry, my my daughter's uh, husband has just been killed. Could you go to the the crime scene and check it out?" And Harry gets to the crime scene, and who is there but Milt Bosworth, aka Clue Gulliger, and they have a chat. Stanley English was killed, and my telephone rang at the beach. You see what I mean about telephones. Then on the other end was Police Lieutenant Humphrey Kenny. We're old friends. We owe each other favors. Lieutenant Kenny has a daughter. Her married name is Jennifer English. She is now the widow of the late Charlie English. Right? Well, Humphrey Kenny thought if I was in the neighborhood, I should say hello. If he has something he wants to know, why didn't he call me? He sends his respects. I hope the lieutenant's in good health. Expects to live a long time. This is an embarrassment to me. You both know that. We weren't friends when you were on the force, Harry. To tell the truth, I don't like you here looking over my shoulder now. Do you know Kenny has a married daughter? I think I might have heard of it someplace. Yeah, you know her married name is English? This English here. If the identification holds. I think you can assume. Well, you see what position he's in. He's a father, he's a father-in-law, he's a police officer. He's in this thing with two hats. He's basically the Ed Asner character in this. He's the, like, I think I've got it all figured out, even though I have no idea what I'm talking about guy. Yeah, and, and you can sort of tell by looking at a clue throughout the movie that, yeah, he doesn't have a clue, if you'll forgive me, and I know that was horrible, but that's kind <laughs> of that's kind of what it is. So, so Harry begins to, um, well, Harry goes to where uh, Jenny is, where she's doing uh, some modeling, and she's doing some great faces, and basically gives her the news that her husband has been uh, killed, and mentions his relationship with her father. And so they end up going to the morgue, and we learn uh, in here that it's been some time since Jenny has actually had any contact with her father. 
I was here to identify my mother. She was walking on the street and had a heart attack. I got a call from my father. He said, uh, they have a woman in the morgue who just might be your mother. You better go down and identify her. I said, aren't you going to go? He said, not me. That's all, just not me. I haven't spoken to him since. Harry begins to sort of, um, after 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 a little time, uh, begins to sort of cultivate a relationship with Jenny and learns about her relationship with the Colonel. Um, well, Harry begins to really kind of uh, fall for for Jenny. A little bit later, that e- let's go to that evening. Uh, it looks like the Colonel is probably going to be called in for questioning. I mean, he saw the the husband slap her, and now suddenly he's dead. Uh, the, the the husband is dead. And the last time we saw Liberty, Jodie Foster's character, Harry had basically told her, get out of here, I won't call the cops. But he immediately calls someone at the police department and asks, hey, have you got anyone uh, reported missing who looks like Jodie Foster? And the guy says, no, we don't have anyone. And he's like, okay, thanks very much. Harry returns home. He, as I said, he rides the bus. And he returns home and finds Liberty sleeping. I believe she's in a phone booth although I could be wrong, very near uh, uh, Harry's home. Harry says, come, come on with me, kid. Uh, you know, I'm going to put you up in my house. You'll, you'll have a place to sleep. And Liberty's a little, little worried because there's a cop at the house, but the cop is Jen, Jenny's dad. And so as Harry chats with Jenny's dad and kind of explains what's going on, uh, Liberty is kind of getting comfortable. And that scene, that evening ends with, uh, and Liberty hasn't said a word of truth to Harry throughout the first half of the the TV movie. But um, finally, when Harry sits with her, she sort of confesses to what's going on. I wasn't eavesdropping. Okay. I just came in to get my sleeping bag. You lead a funny kind of life. You don't even have a car. I have a car. Then why don't you use it? It's going to cost me about $300 to get the transmission rebuilt, and I'm thinking about it. You broke now? No, that's not what I'm talking about. It, it's way of life. Hey, uh, how long are you planning to stay here? I'm just waiting. For what? For my mom to come back. i got to be someplace where she can find me. See, the last place she knows where I was is around here. Where's your mom now? In jail. What for? Stealing. She went to get us something to eat. I was going to do my part, too. She didn't want me stealing. But I said if she could steal and I couldn't, that she was a hypocrite. She made me wait outside anyhow. And they caught her. But that's what she said. She said, wait outside, and if anything happens, go hide and wait for me. Was that uh, little supermarket a couple blocks down? Agrits. Whatever. And that's the name of it, Agrits. What, do you always steal? We just ran out of money. So we came down here to get a job, but we didn't find one right away. What kind of job are you looking for? Julie is a hairdresser. That's your mother. How long do you think she'll be in jail? Well, maybe we can find out. I'll go to sleep now. 
as uh, as that sort of plot line is going along, getting uh, give, getting Liberty's uh, mom Julia out of jail, we get more and more of Roy St. John, and he's getting nuttier and nuttier, and he talks to himself a lot. And one of the one of the plot lines, uh, one of the, the the sort of bits of business that kind of comes up early on is Jenny talking to the colonel and saying something like, oh, I misplaced my keys, oh, I lost this earring, this is just, I'm a chaotic kind of person. And you learn as we go along that, no, not so much. Roy is continually breaking into her place, taking things, and then sometimes bringing them back, sometimes not, hanging out on her bed, and just being really creepy. The colonel, um, Harry goes to talk to the colonel in, in jail, and yeah, the colonel kind of isn't it doesn't really seem like the colonel kind of did it but then the colonel seems to commit suicide which is a bit of a heartbreaker and there's a really long uh, sort of sequence where harry is trying to get in touch with jenny to see if she knows what's going on because she invited harry over to have dinner with her and the colonel and he just keeps keeps thinking like please no Please have heard something. Please have heard that this happened to the colonel. And it's 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 really a lovely scene. And they sort of they get closer and closer as they go. The problem now is that Roy is getting crazier and crazier, and getting more brazen in his nuttiness. He Harry catches him at one point in her apartment, and they chase. Yeah, and it's it's he's not. It's so good because he's just sitting at her table in the dark, yeah. and Harry O comes in to to look around. He asks if he can have a key, so because he's he thinks somebody he's got an idea somebody's been in the apartment, and so he's like, "Can you loan me your keys? I just want to look around." And he walks in, and it's dark, so he can't tell that anybody's there. But you see Zalman King, so he so if the lights were on, what Harry O would have seen immediately when he walked in is the back of Zalman King's head, but because he, he doesn't know what's going on, and he's just walking in the apartment, assuming nobody's going to be in there you see the way they shot it is it's from Zalman King the front of Zalman King with Harry O in the background and Zalman King turns his head and he's kind of shocked that somebody's walked into the apartment and then he just turns his head back and he keeps sitting there still at the table and then Harry O is doing a couple things and then he turns on the light and he looks around and he sees the back of this dude's head sitting at the yes. table and it's yeah. freaky yeah, it's 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 there's Zoman King has a line on freaky in this movie that is just, <laughs> he does. Just not, He's so good not, in this. Yes, and, and so you get you get that moment compounded with a moment where he basically goes up to Jenny in like a supermarket or something and says, Hey, I've been taking pictures of you. What? Yeah, I take a lot of pictures of you. I think you'll like some of them. I left them at your door. You know where I live? Oh, yeah, I know where you live. And Jenny isn't as freaked out by this as you might imagine she should be. Can we talk about the part where they're at the car wash? That is the scariest scene to me because she's getting her car washed and she's got her back to the window while her car is going in front of her, you know, on the little grid thing. And he's Zalman King is behind her looking at her through the window just staring at her blatantly and then Harry O walks up to her and he doesn't Zoma King just stares at he's in the background the entire time looking at them through the window and he doesn't move and the whole conversation just happens like there's nothing else happening in the scene but Zalman King is right there in the back frozen totally fixed on Jenny and it's so yes. freaky yeah and and what happens, and I, I'll stop here, but what happens is as his obsession with her gets crazier and crazier, and as he sees that her and Harry might be growing closer together, they're certainly becoming more f friends. 
um, than he could probably ever be with Jenny. Um, not only does Harry sort of go on the list, but Jenny kind of goes on the, the list for um, bad things happening. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of leave it there because Roy is going to be going crazy near the end of the movie. And I'll, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but Roy can fly. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> Roy thinks he can fly, I think is the yeah. point. Um, <laughs> so, so for some reason, I've had a copy of this. So I do want to say I got a copy of this movie before Warner Archives put it out. Um, uh, through my friend Jeremy Ritchie. And so I just want to mention that because he sent it to me eons ago because I sent him every episode of Lou Grant, as you do. Oh. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so he, he gave me this because he thought I would really like it. And I sat on it for so long and I've always wanted to watch it. And I just kept getting put like next to the top of the pile list, but never kind of made the top. And so uh, this is my first time viewing. And I think this is your first time viewing too. Is that right, Dan? Yes. Yes, it is. So tell me your thoughts on it. Uh, I really liked it. I, it's, it comparing it to House and Green Apple Road, it's it's sort of more chaotic, and sort yeah. of more more crazy. And it's not Green Apple Road is a sort of standard classic Agatha Christie, John Dixon Carr study in Scarlet style, especially like a study in Scarlet style mystery where there is a killing of some variety, and the the whole thing is about getting all the backstory, and then in the end here's what happens whereas this is more crazy it's people getting it's not like i I, I guess maybe there are there might be an element or two of like a strange american giallo type thing to it but Mm. it's it's basically you get this woman who you learn is being fixated on by this man who begins to kill all the people around her that either threaten her or threatens his line to her and eventually our detective kind of gets in there and then we have to resolve everything i have not seen i had not seen this or the first harry o tv movie but i watched the entirety of the two seasons of harry o on warner archive instant may you rest in peace um yeah and loved them absolutely loved them i had such a good time watching it and the great the great thing about it is that david jansen is so good and the series starts off wonderfully and then actually gets better as it goes uh so so it's interesting because the last harry o i watched was the end of the second season so this is really going back way before the beginning and i i quite liked it i think it's i think it's it's well written it is it does have a craziness to it um i don't know if the um the harry o falling in love with Jenny thing completely works. I mean, I probably would. Look at those poses she's making. Look at her smile <laughs> when she's spinning and everything. You know, why not? I, but um, I do like that. I, I, and I guess I, I wonder if, if this was, say, either the first or second time I was seeing this character, I don't. I wonder if I would have liked it as much as I did. Because to me, this was, I've seen Harry O in 42 hour-long episodes. So seeing it here was just like, hey, there he is again in a story I haven't seen. And I do like David Jensen very much. And I think he's uh, he's really good in this. And I think everyone, especially Zelman King, who is just so nuts in this, is just, uh, it. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I don't like it as much as House on Green Apple Road because I don't think it's as... Um, it doesn't feel sort of, I don't know, I don't know if well thought through is is the, the right term for it, but there's something about House on Green Apple Road that I like a bit more, but 
Smile Jenny or Dead definitely has um, kept, kept me hooked, kept me interested. Uh, Zelman King freaked me out a couple of times and it built to a, a fine ending and left me wanting to see more of Harry O's adventures. Plus, Jodie Foster is awesome. So, yeah, I, I give this a thumbs up. Awesome. Yeah, I think I probably agree that I think House on Green Apple Road is a better film. It's I think the word I would have used there would be nuanced or meticulous. It yes. takes more time with it and it is maybe more of like a traditional mystery this you kind of know who the bad guy is it's just kind of watching harry o figure out how to figure out who it is and um but i too am a big harry o fan but i haven't seen the show since i was a kid but i think i've said this before but when i was seven or eight years old and i was i've just moved to vegas they used to play Streets of San Francisco and Hario every Saturday afternoon on our local channel. And that was the high point of my weekend. And I was, I don't know what I was thinking at that age watching these two shows because they were so dark for a seven-year-old, you know, but I loved them. They were like the best cop shows ever. And I just couldn't wait for Saturday to come. And while I don't remember a lot about Hario in terms of the stories, I just loved it. I loved it. I remember he lived on the beach. I remember all that. And I do remember watching the Martin Sheen pilot movie, the first pilot, only because I remember Martin Sheen. Um, But I don't remember the story at all or anything about it. But I know I've seen it. Uh, This one, though, had slipped me by. And I'm really glad I got to see it. It has a lot of things that I love just in terms of my personal uh, 70s TV movie aesthetic. And that would be the photo shoot was magnificent. It was magnificent. Like, because it's first, it's her just posing very kind of like leaning against this like kind of table thing. And it's very calm and dignified. And it's never not dignified, but it's just very simple. And then she's, they're playing this like kind of classical music. And then she says, could you put on something funky? And they do, and she starts dancing, and it's just great. And her hair is everywhere, and she's wearing this beautiful yellow dress, and she's standing on these phone books, and they make a point to show that, which is really great. And Harry O comes in, and he sees her. And so what I see there is kind of what I saw in Jackie Brown when Robert Forrester first gets Jackie Brown out of jail, and she's walking to him. You know, do you remember that scene? And he sees her, and it's just... He's lost to her forever. And that's kind of how I picture Harry O in that scene. He just walks in on this photo shoot and he's lost to her. And one of the things that I like about the character of Jenny, first of all, I love Andrea Marcovici who plays Jenny, but I like that they have her with older men. So it makes sense that she too would be attracted to Harry O. Mm-hmm. Because she's pretty young. And I could see a lot of people kind of rolling their eyes, but they make a point to sort of show her with older men. And also with daddy issues, right? So I think we can kind of understand where he might fit in as a potential love interest. Uh-huh. So I think that a lot of people, it doesn't work for them, the love story. But I think it does for me. Um, like, I get, I think I get both sides of the coin. And it turns out Andrea Marcovici, and I think it's in my background here, but, you know, she has said numerous times, talking about the Harry pilot, that she already had a crush on him when they went into shooting. Oh. And if you ever go on her website there's this really great photo of her and him like in between scenes and she's looking at him with these big wide eyes. Like she's so in love with him. And so like, so like she was legit attracted to David Jansen, you know, and I'm assuming he thought she was a beautiful woman. So I don't know. I like their love affair. I think it's simple. I like that it doesn't go very far because that's Mm -hmm. kind of real. And 
but I do I do find an attraction between the two of them, and I really enjoy the romance aspect of it. And the romance is really just them becoming friends, but I think it's nice. Yeah. And I, I think it's a nice break from Zalman King, who is amazing in this. He's so he's so scary. He's so scary. Yeah. I can't believe how freaky he is in this, and he's wonderful. And include Gulliver is great in it, and it's really just it's all it's not a comfy it's not one of those cozy mysteries that I like so much like Father Dowling, but there is a lot of let back and let the actors do the driving for you. I, I care less mm-hmm. about the story. In Green Apple Road, I'm totally caught up in the story. Here in Harry O, I'm less concerned about the story, and I'm more interested in just the dynamic between the actors being in the same room together and watching them sort of do their scenes. It's like it's not like watching the acting, but the, you're just letting them do the driving. They're working for you. You don't have to. And so, um, and I appreciate that aspect of it. And it's really made me want to go back and get Harry O finally and watch every episode because I forgot how much I loved that show and how much I love I love David Jansen and everything I've seen him in but Harry O was really my introduction to him and I have such a soft spot for this TV series and I, I really need to give it another go but yeah I was really and I should have known Jeremy would not have sent me a movie I wouldn't like he knows me pretty well we're on the same page with this type of stuff but like I'm sorry I waited so long to watch it, and um, it was really, really good, and I think it made it kind of an interesting double feature, so I'm glad that yeah. we got to see it. I didn't know Zalman King was in this, and three days before I watched it, I watched Trip with the Teacher. Oh, was he I in that? Never seen be- yes, he is the freaky guy with the big glasses. Of course. And I had never... Trip with the Teacher was one of those that I've had on DVD for ages. Why? I don't know. But I always would look at it and go, I think I know exactly what this film is. And I don't... I'm really never in the mood for this anymore. I used to be, um, but nowadays I'm not. But then for some reason, like three days ago, I just said, time to watch Trip with the Teacher... And about 90 minutes later, I thought that was exactly what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but then when I saw he was in Smile, Jenny, or Dead, I, I mean, I love the fact that he's in this, the hair, second Harry O movie, and then a year later, he's in Trip with a Teacher. Now that's a career arc I can get behind. Well, Norman King is a brilliant man to me. So, like, I really know Norman King as the erotic filmmaker, and I don't really necessarily course. love his theatrical films like wild orchid's okay but wild orchid 2 is amazing like his direct-to-video stuff and his made for cable stuff like the red shoe diaries are some of the most amazing things i've ever seen and the red shoe diaries pilot is something i would like to cover on here eventually i just don't know what to double it with and um it's gonna happen because i think it's a really amazing film but he was so good at uh female-centric erotica and so, like, if you watch the Red Shoe Diaries, they're really made for women. They really are. They have beautiful women in them, and men can watch them and enjoy them. But the stories are really rooted in things that I think women relate to more. And it was such a great thing to see at that time when erotic thrillers were becoming really prominent. And in most erotic thrillers, the woman is like the bad guy. You know what I mean? And she's caused all the harm. And actually, I had a conversation about this because in the 90s, um, it went, you go into like uh, film theory. A lot of people saw erotic thrillers as not just a response to HIV, but the woman was actually the disease. And the man, because you know, when the man meets the woman, he becomes sort of infected, like he can't control himself anymore, and all this horrible stuff happens, but it's always at the root of this woman. And so, so there's been a lot of talk about that. So basically, it's very sort of degrading in a way to the female characters. But I don't think Zalman King 
was like that at all. And so uh, that's part of why I appreciate him so much. So I had never, I haven't seen Blue Sunshine, which shocks me because Charles Siebert from Trapper John is in it. And so I don't know why I haven't seen it. It's, but, pretty, yeah, um, it's very good, yeah. Yeah, he's in that. And I've never seen Zalma King as an actor ever. This is my introduction to him. And he's fantastic. Really? He's so good. He, I mean, I would be terrified to be in the same room with him. But, oh, like, yeah. if I met him, you know, but, like, uh, because of this character. But he was very good. And I think I read a review somewhere that said he played crazy like nobody's ever done it before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And they're right. Yeah. It's like... It could have been it could have been just a cardboard cutout, but there's something about his approach to it that it really stands out. It's very good. It's original. It's unique, yeah. and it's creepy as hell. And he does have that Michael Myers hanging out in the background, just casually, kind of. I mean, because he, from all the pictures, he's been observing her for ages, and sometimes he's like six or seven feet away from her just taking pictures of her and she's not seeing it and it's just it's crazy he does like 10 different types of crazy in this movie and they're all (laughs) they are yeah and he's got the bow tie and like he's just he's fantastic in this and i love i love clue gallagher too because when he plays these kind of characters that sort of are like against the hero like he did a movie with chuck norris i think it's called force of one i think that's the the chuck norris movie clue gallagher's in and clue gallagher just can't even be bothered it's like, <laughs> like he, it's like he's almost in a separate film. I mean, the acting's really good, but I mean, the character cannot be bothered by, uh, by what is in front of his face that is right to do. And uh-huh. so, like, he's just like lounging, like the, just the way he approaches that character is hilarious. He just, he's so bothered by everything, you know. And it's just like, oh, do I have to do this again? And he's sure that uh, what happened to Jenny's husband is just so black and white that he just doesn't, he can't see that there, there's so much gray that's happening. That doesn't make sense. And so like, he just, he's so, Oh, whatever, Harry. Yeah. Whatever. This is my job. You're just the detective and he's wrong about everything, you know? Yes. Yeah. Hilarious. Like his approach to it is it's comical. You know what I mean? He's so good in the Mm. part. So, so yeah, it's just a bunch of good actors and some creepy shit and it's great. Yeah, and, and there is in the – although the, the relationship is slightly different, and I have to see what the character's name is because I don't remember now, but in Harry O, at least for the first season, there was a character who was very much like Clue Guller's character who is there all the time, and Harry's always showing up at the crime scenes. He's like, hey, Harry, how are you? Or, well, I forget what he calls him. How is that Anthony Zerby? Uh, I, for, I forget who the character... I, I, I could look him up as we're chatting here, but um, yeah, he's a great character, and they actually give him a strange character arc in the show when um, Harry moves from San Diego to Los Angeles, which is really kind of weird, uh, but interesting. I, I, I can find out who the uh, the character is here. I've actually got it right here. Star... Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anthony Zerpin plays you, him. I don't know the character name, but... Okay, yeah, I, I, I don't know his... He, Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. No, no, actually, I'm going to have to come back, folks. I think there was another character I'm thinking of oh, here. Oh, okay. Um, and, and, but, because when, the thing with Harry's, like, when Harry moves to Los Angeles, one of the main supporting characters is Farrah Fawcett. So oh. it was Henry Darrow. Henry Darrow. Oh, yes, I know Henry Darrow. I'm on Henry Darrow's Facebook, by the way. Oh, get, get out of here. Yes, yeah, he's he was, so he with was, us, and he's amazing. Yeah, he was. He played like um, he he's not quite um like a, a, a 
like antagonistic towards Harry, but he's like the one Harry always calls him and says, "Yeah, can you look up to see if this happened?" He's like, "Harry, I can't stop everything. <laughs> We've got a whole city." That guy, and Anthony Zerby takes over when he goes to Los Angeles. Oh, it's okay. a good show. Oh, I need to watch yeah, it again. I need to rewatch and, it. And, I loved it as a kid, yeah. and it was my introduction to Anthony Zerby too. And I and so when I would see him go. and stuff like Kiss Me Sweet at the park and stuff, I would go crazy. Oh. Of course, yeah. I mean, I always go crazy when Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park is on any DVD player in my house. I go crazy immediately. It's natural. It's natural. Yes. And I, th- I think that if I can go just back to the, the, the not-quite-romance between Harry and Jenny real quick, I think I do like the fact that Harry really falls for her and she kind of falls for him, but they just don't, it doesn't happen, which you don't really sort of see happen much it's i mean it's either it's going to happen or it's not going to but in this it, they have a scene together after the colonel dies and he's kind of um I, he's not quite comforting her but he, they're in the bed together and they just spend a night in bed together but just like holding one another yes. and it's really and it's really like romantic and 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 lovely and and sweet and it's it's sort of like and they they say it it's like that like I, I I think Jenny says to him or do, I think she says to him something like that was like one of the most romantic nights of my life or something like that and you know what well he I, I, I can see that or maybe he, he says, says that I don't know he says to her he says to her I've I've felt closer to you than I felt to anybody in a long time and um she says I I felt that too and I think um that's what I remember them saying. Yes, yeah, it's it's a really lovely moment because they're they're in the midst of this craziness. I mean, well, you got Zalman King uh, after you, you know, it's it's craziness. But and, but there's just this sweet romantic scene where they don't, there's no, they're not fooling around, they're not mashing faces together, not rolling around. They're just they just hold one another in in a moment where they need to be there for one another, and it's really you can you can feel it when they say they felt close to what you can, I think you can feel it and. I like that quite a bit. Oh, it just it makes the ending more poignant because at the end, yes. she's like, I can't do this, Harry. And it makes sense because her whole life has been destroyed by this guy because he killed her husband, even though she was leaving him. That's her husband. And then he killed her boyfriend, right? And the colonel. And it's her whole life has just been, like, torn apart. And, like, it's it makes you not want to get involved with people. Like it changes you. And so like, instead of just having like a romance or like, I'm going to take a trip across the world and find myself or whatever. It's like a really real reaction (laughs) to like what happens, what would happen to somebody who is trying to keep their shit together, but it's just had everything pulled out from underneath them. And also she goes back to her dad. Right. So like she's at the end when she's saying goodbye to Harry, she's like, I just can't do this right now. The timing's not right. And I'm going back home. And I never thought I would do that, but I am. And it all makes sense to me in terms of like a real reaction to the trauma that she would just revert back to the safest place she could, which would be her father. And that she'd have to sort of block everybody else out. Plus, by the way, if she falls in love with somebody, they die. So, like, even if she wanted <laughs> to be with Harry O, she's got this idea that it's just going to be horrible, right? So it lead to some dire situations. So, like, I, I think it's really poignant the way this episode or the way this TV movie ended, and I really like that choice. 
Yeah, me, me too. I, I, I think just, just the fact that it ends with yeah, like, like Jenny returns to her dad and Liberty returns to her mom, and That's you right. hope there will be, there will be some peace there, there will be some, some, some happiness there, and, and well, uh, Harry is left on a... with the, with the neighbor, right? What was her name? Mildred, the really beautiful oh, Mildred. Oh. chess player. Oh my God! Woo! Oh my God! That's, that's. I mean, yeah, this is Harry who's going to be hanging out with Farrah Fawcett in, you know, a season right. or so. So, you know, <laughs> Harry, it's it's so great. I didn't mention her because there were a lot, there are things going on, but there's just a moment where he's Harry's talking to Liberty at the start, and suddenly this gorgeous Russ Meyer-esque woman shows up. Yes. And she's, hey, Harry. And Liberty's like, who is that? <laughs> oh, that's Mildred. And, and, you know, Mildred sets up a chessboard. Mildred, yeah, she's my neighbor. You know, and it's like it's like uh it's it's great. It's it's really lovely because I I if knowing Harry O from the show, that was perfect. That's that's complete and perfect Harry O right there. You know, he's just hanging out in his little shorts and his like windbreaker or whatever, and suddenly this gorgeous woman shows up wanting to play chess. And that's, you know, and that's, he's going to be okay because Mildred is his neighbor. Yeah, you know, it's great because because we're looking at so many different dynamics of him with women, and he's so not a sleazebag at all. He's this really stand-up guy. He's so good to Jodie Foster. And, yes. and you know, that's a questionable thing, taking in a young girl when you're a single guy, right? Like that, I think in our cynical modern eyes, we're like, oh, don't do that. Even if you're a good person, that's just so weird. But like, it's so fatherly and so good. And then he's not yeah. sleazy with Mildred. That's his neighbor. And he plays chess with her and he probably looks at her and thinks she's beautiful. But you get no indication that he's ever inappropriate with her. And he's never inappropriate with Andrew Markovici. They all, they move at the right pace yes. for what they yeah. need to do, you know? And so I think this is a lot for the character, you know, that I really liked anyway. It's- and and the, the whole time too, there's this just the 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 questions of the backstory with his cop background and the bullet in his back, which will be dealt with also in the show. One of the joys of Harry O as it goes along is there are certain things are not left sort of mentioned and left on the back burner forever. A few things are actually dealt with, and one of the things that'll be dealt with is the fact that he's got the bullet in his back. I forget yeah. whether he actually ever fully gets a working car. Because in in this he does in in the show if I remember correctly he will borrow people's cars on yes. occasion but generally you see him sitting on the bus which I love because there's a moment where he's talking to Clue Gulliger who's kind of and Gulliger's uh, well well uh, Milt is kind of putting Harry O down and Harry O's like how often do you ride the bus Milt it's great you can sit there and look around and just think and and you know and you know what. I, I ride the bus myself, you know, and you can't, sometimes it's a pain in the hole, but there are times where you can <laughs> sit and just peace, peaceably, um, yes. just sit and let someone else drive through the crap and get you where you need to go. And, and is, I, I guess you'll say this in the background, is Howard Rodman, who wrote the teleplay, did he create Harry O? I want to say I remember, recognize his name from... That's a good question because I didn't get a chance to really look him up the way I wanted to, so I don't know. His name popped up a lot in the um, reviews. He was actually written about more than almost uh, uh, David Jansen was. Um, he So he had a lot to do with the movie, um, and he I think he was pretty well-respected at this time in his career but i don't know enough about him to he did produce peyton place but i don't see him listed here with uh 
Perio. So, okay, um, unfortunately, think, I don't know much about him. I, I think I'm fairly certain. I think Howard, Howard Rodman, I think, is the guy who... Um, I think I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that he did create the show just because I remember Maybe. that name popping up a lot early on. Um, and, and because he does such a good job with the character. Yeah. Uh, that I, th- I, th- I think one of the things with shows like this, and we, we've said this, well, this is a TV movie, I'm sorry, but is that you, you, you have the, well, like Rockford, for example. With Rockford, with each episode of Rockford, you get a little bit more of Jim. But with each episode, you also get generally like another world that you get introduced to, okay. and you get that you get that world for just that one episode, and then when the episode is done, that world is gone. But Jim continues, and you get the bits of the what Jim encountered in that episode become part of his character and carry on to the next one. And that's one of the things with Harry O that's great is you get this this world, not a beautiful world because Zalman King is crazy in it. And some might call that a beautiful world. <laughs> I do. You, you, I know, I know you do. Um, and, and just this, you get this this world created here and with Harry O in it. And at the end of it, the, the people who are left alive go off with one another and hopefully live a good life. And Harry O is fixing up his boat the answer waiting for mildred to come over in a bikini and play chess and there'll be another story well i think this is a good thing to sort of talk about because at the beginning we were talking about how we don't know much about dan august he comes to work he does his job but he's pretty fleshed out and we appreciate him as a person but here we've got a fully fleshed out character with the history just the bullet in his back and we see him at home and we see what he's like with different types of women we see what he's like with the cops he used to work with and you get a much much more refined fuller picture of Harrio than you ever probably do of dan august um but they're both equally dimensional you know because just because christopher george is so deft with the character and the writing is really good but um Hario is, I think, a movement into that where we're starting to look into the lives of these people more so and less about the procedural aspect of it, you know? Yeah, definitely. He's so good in this. I, I really love David Jansen. He's a wonderful actor, and I'm sad Me that too. he left us so soon because um, oh, yeah, there's so much he could have done. That's a bummer. Yeah, but, yeah, I, he was – I guess I Christopher George died young too, so when you think about it. He, he did, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think that one of the things I do love about Harry O is I do love his narration very much. Yeah, I, I think it's it's generally really well written narration, and it's it's a it's a little more. Well, no, I don't know. Maybe I expect this from David Jansen and Harry O. It's a little more poetic and lovely at its at its best yeah. moments. Um, and and it really um, and th- there's just something about to that you know he lives at the beach and he's got the he's got the boat and it's just now i want to see the first movie i mean i want to see it right now like i want to get up and just let you finish and i'll go watch the uh, first movie i'm not going to do that you can't because i i can do the background but before we do the background i think we should talk about the (laughs) ending of the episode not or the movie i keep wanting to call it episode um is not the part where they're together but zalman king's end so <laughs> yes, okay. because it's yeah. worth talking about. So so they all the detective work pays off and he's kind of got a general idea of what's happening. But um Zalma King is kind of one step ahead of him and he kidnaps Jenny and he takes her to the top of this building. I can't remember what building it is, if it's her apartment or what, but um they're at the top of this building and he's basically like gonna kill them 
so that they can live together in eternity. So Jenny and what's Salmon King's character's name again? Uh, Roy St. John. Roy and Jenny are going to be together forever in the afterlife. And so basically he's going to throw her off this building and I guess jump. And so she's kind of fighting her time and she's totally freaked out. And uh, then all these cops show up and She's like, let me model for you. And she's being all distracting or whatever. And then they show up uh, on the roof, the police. And <laughs> what is it? He just says, he just says something like, I can fly, right? And then he jumps yes, off yep. the building. And that's it. He leaps off the building. <laughs> yep. We, we're done. I guess he's, yeah, I, mean, I guess he's hoping she'll follow him maybe or something. Maybe I've convinced you. I don't, yeah. I it's, don't know. It's an interesting it's an interesting ending because it really is like a nut just uh, and I you know and I say that in the nicest possible way just sort of going maybe he if he's convinced he can fly then then he doesn't know what's going to happen happens it's, so maybe it's very much can... like Christmas evil isn't it exactly yes yes where where if you listen to the soundtrack you can hear the van crash but you don't <laughs> yeah. see the van crash in yeah. the in on the image right so yes and I, I what I had read was that if there had been a third season of Harry O it would have ended with Roy St. John reappearing in a two-parter at the end of the season no. with the power of flight you but Come on, you're you gonna you're gonna doubt you're gonna doubt my uh, yeah. I want you to cite your source. I want you to cite your source because I don't believe you. You know what? I left my source in the other room, um, and I can't leave the <laughs> microphone. Okay, okay. Well, so anyway, it's a wacky ending, but he's a wacky character, and I don't know that yeah. it's like necessarily the strongest ending of a pilot movie I've ever seen, but it is shocking and you don't see it coming yeah. and it is what it is um it's just such a weird but it's he's a weird character i mean it almost makes sense that he would do something like that to a degree um but it's just such a funny ending and i just wanted to mention it um but it's there's no twist you know it's not like house and green apple road no. just a thing that happens and then it's over and it, oh, to be honest, it's really about that last scene anyway between um, Jenny and Harry. You know, it's just like he's just the catalyst to bring them together, but he's really not as important as that romance, I think. So, bye, Zolman. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, Mr. St. John. Roy St. John, Jennifer English. <laughs> he, he didn't make it. <laughs> he, he didn't. It's just, what, what are you going to do? What are you, so, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's. That's Harry O. It's wacky, it's wild, it's fun, it's got great acting, and we both enjoyed it. And I hope Nate liked it too, and we'll find out next time. I hope so. I hope so. So, yeah. so let's just do some background because then we have a couple more things to do before we go. So, this right. aired on February 3rd, 1974, on ABC. It ran against on ABC an episode of Heck Ramsey, which was part of that Mystery Wheel show that I referenced earlier that had Columbo and um, like McMillan and wife on it. And I then love on CBS. Heck Ramsey. And then on CBS was Cinderella, which was a special, and there's something called Play, uh, not something called, and Playhouse 90s, uh, The Migrants, which starred Ron Howard and Cloris Leachman, um, and which I have not heard of and must be amazing. So this ended up with, I couldn't get a rating for House on Green Apple Road, uh, but the rating for this was 22.9 slash 35, which I think, I'm going to skip the numbers part because apparently I'm not doing that right and I don't know how to read the numbers but I will tell you that 35 means that it ran in 35% of uh, it aired in 35% of the households that had televisions which um, 
was quite a large number. I don't know what that equals in millions, but it ended up becoming number 32 for the season of all the TV movies that aired that year. So that's pretty good. It was shot in Paradise Cove in Malibu. It was actually originally envisioned as a TV version of Dirty Harry. Harry O was loosely based, uh, was actually loosely based on the character Nathaniel West from Day of the Locust and was written with Telly Savalas in mind which I thought was really interesting. In an interview, David Jansen remarked that it was the best script he'd ever seen. And as I said earlier, Martin Sheen starred in the first pilot, but that pilot didn't garner very good ratings. But Harry O, at the time, and I don't know how often this has happened since Harry O, it had the very distinct pleasure of being one of only three TV shows that started with two pilots. So... Um, the other two were The DA, which was a short-lived series, and, of course, Columbo, which had Prescription Murder that aired in, like, 68, and then right, and then um, Ransom for a Dead Man was the Lee Grant episode that was the pilot for the official run of the series. Um, yes. So at the time, those were the only three shows that had ever had two pilots. In 1973, there were 110 pilots developed. Oh, here's where I got that part where I was talking about warmer series. So there was a shift towards warmer shows like the Waltons, though I guess there were still a lot of cop shows being produced, as I mentioned earlier from that other article. Harry O was added to the BBC in 1974, and in January of 73, which would have been one month before this, right, or one year and one month, I'm sorry, the year before he did Harry O, he appeared in a TV movie called Birds of Prey. I don't know if you knew this, but Jansen was a certified genius with an IQ of 160. He read six books a week. I wrote a bio about him wow. that uh, if anybody wants to read, they just can go on Made for TV Man. It's just a real basic bio, but I, it's probably better to just leave it there. Jansen led four different TV series in his career. That's Richard Diamond, Private Detective, The Fugitive, which is, of course, the most popular series he did. O'Hara, United States Treasury, and, and of course, Harry O. He appeared in 20 TV movies and dozens and dozens of feature films. Uh, as we know, uh, David Jansen died at the age of 48. He died two days into filming Father Damien, the leper priest, who was a character who ironically died in his late 40s as well. Um, production was suspended for a short time until Ken Howard was recast in the role, and the film was dedicated to Jansen in the credits. Um, David Jansen has a website. I think it's called the David Jansen Archive. That's going to give you all the information you need to know about his career, and it's a really, really amazing website. Andrea Marcovici is also a singer. Um, she made her debut in Car at Carnegie Hall in 1993. She actually was a heavily trained stage actress from New York City, and as I mentioned earlier on her website, she talks about having had a crush on David Jansen, and there's a photo there. We kind of see her looking at him like she has a crush on him. Um, John Anderson, who played the colonel in this, and David Jansen would appear in the following together. They were in an episode of Zangre Theater called, uh, the episode's called Crown of Scylla from 1965. John Anderson appeared in two episodes of The Fugitive. The episodes are titled Come Watch Me Die and The Scapegoat, 64 and 65 were their release dates respectively, and of course the Harry O. Pilot. Um, Jodie Foster's TV movie career began in 1969. Uh, oh, TV and movie career, I'm sorry. Began in 1969, so she was already a veteran by the time she did Small Jenny, You're Dead, and had several credits. As I mentioned earlier, Zalma King is probably best known for his erotic films, such as Wild Orchid and The Red Shoe Diaries, but he had over 40 acting credits and appeared in such things as Triple Teacher, as you just said, Ironside, and Charlie's Angels. And he's a very good actor, and I'm really impressed with him. I wrote Clue Gulliger's name here, and then I didn't put any information because I feel like everybody should know who Clue Gulliger yes. is and everything. Um, I, I got the pleasure of getting to know him a little when I lived in Los Angeles because he was a regular at the New Beverly. 
which is a movie theater there that's now owned by Quentin Tarantino. And he would just talk to you and talk to you and talk to you. And he was a really wonderful guy. He's a great actor. I can't think of one role to recommend you see him in, but uh, if he's in something, you know, he's going to be great. If nothing else, he appeared in what was meant to be the first made for TV movie, which was Don Siegel's the killers that ended up being deemed too violent for TV. So it ended up becoming a theatrical and just in general, he's an awesome actor. And that's my background. Did you mention Billy Goldenberg? I forgot. You know, I've met Billy Goldenberg. Oh, really? Did you know that? Yeah, and I have his business I, card store, but I don't know where it is. He gave me his card, and I'm really <laughs> angry that I've lost it. He, uh, I met him at Beat Arthur's one-woman show. He did the music for it, and he toured with her. And I've met B. Arthur twice. Uh, I have her autograph somewhere here in this house. It's amazing. But um, the second time um, was really to meet Billy Goldenberg because he did a ton of TV movies. I think he did um, The Legend of Lizzie Borden was the one that always comes to mind. Mm. He did the music for this album, mm. not the lyrics to the songs, but he did the music, um, which is what I wanted to talk to him about. And um, mm-hmm. and he's a lovely gentleman, and he's a wonderful musician. And the music and Smile Jenny, your dad is great, especially when they get funky. That's right. That's really good, isn't it? I love that. Yeah. She gets into it, too. She puts her hair swinging back. And like, oh, such a great photo shoot. I love I love model shoots in movies. I just, I love it. It's so glamorous, and the women are always yes. beautiful. And, you know, I just love to watch that kind of stuff. It's so much fun. I do love that shot where you see her feet on the, like, the phone books or, or whatever, kind of moving around, and she's really getting into it. And Harry is just looking, going, thinking, like, oh, man. I know, I know. I think Andrea Marcovici must have been a dancer because she's so graceful in those scenes. And the fact that she's yeah. not falling off the phone book says a lot about her ability to balance. Because yeah. I would have fallen right off like two seconds into that shoot. And I wouldn't have looked as good as her at all. Even in my 20s, no, I couldn't hey. have pulled that off. Hey, hey, no. No, it's all about Marcovici. <laughs> it's all about Andrea. Well, she's stunning. Hey. I love so okay so yay so that's two movies we really enjoyed which is great um because that doesn't always happen and we do have a little bit of feedback feedback time yeah oh yes so our friend Tim from the Bitter Bastard and Kelly show wrote uh, to us, and he said, big fan of both characters, uh, meaning Dan August and um, Harry O. I have both seasons of Harry O on DVD. It's really a shame that they didn't give it a third season. Along with the Rockford Files, it was probably the most realistic depiction of a private investigator. Is a Dan August film available on DVD? And I think you answered him on Twitter about that and showed him the how much better it looked. Yeah. Okay. And then our friend Kenneth Smith wrote, I like the Harry O character and everyone in this TV movie are good, but the story seems a little weak. I got a copy from the Warner Archive and it looks amazing. This storyline has been done to death and Harry just seems more lucky than a good detective. I still recommend this because of the cast. I will say there's a little luck there. It's not so much a mystery, is it, as it's just sort of showing up and catching the sky. He he yeah, I I think one of the one of the things that we sort of didn't mention is that point when he uh I was going to say Jill St. John, Roy St. John says to Jenny, "I I left the photos at your door." And the moment like Harry begins to look at him, he's like, "Wait a minute. What are the angles here?" And then when he begins right. to see where the the pictures are coming from then he begins to piece together like okay who lives there what's going on so it's almost like roy gives himself away and roy is a fun name for a psychotic killer it is 
By the way, I don't know if you could hear that noise, but uh, so my phone went off a little while ago and I have this printer here that doesn't actually work and it's turned off, but it automatically turns itself on periodically. And for some reason it's done <laughs> twice now since we've been recording. And so I just want to let everybody know if you hear some funky noises in the background, that's what's happening. And I apologize. Yeah, it's like, it's, I don't know. It's not so much about Harry doing anything. It's just hanging out and being Harry. For me, you know what I mean. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have, and neither does Roy. Roy just needs to be creepy. It just, it's just, it just works. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's not, it's not a mystery in the end. It's just a stop Jenny from getting hurt. Kind yeah, of stop, that was the original title, it, wasn't it? Stop Jenny from being stop, hurt. <laughs> stop Jenny from being hurt. Smile, Jenny. You're not going to get hurt. So uh, we also have some feedback from our friend Adam Gordon. So let me play that for you right now. Adam Gordon here, and cops are back on the beat this month. First, Dan August in-house on Green Apple Road. It would have been interesting had Christopher George been available for this series. Maybe it would have been more story-driven rather than the action-driven Reynolds series. This film did benefit from a longer runtime. It allowed the story to develop, giving it the feel of a theatrical release. In fact, the movie would have been better known if it had been released to theaters. The complex storyline, the sexual psychodrama, and the cinematography would have fit right in with the era, with only a little more sex and nudity, of course. Watch for jazzy driving music that I need in my car. A grumpier Ed Asner than usual. He really hated spunk in this one. A Linda Day cameo. There seemed to be zero chemistry between the soon-to-be spouses. An unexpected expert in the buoyancy of the female body. A busybody mare who sucks at pool. A husband with a perpetual deer-in-the-headlights look. And Janet Lee killing it in an old-school swimsuit. The psychological irony is that while Marion did develop increasingly violent tendencies, she started with the smallest problem of all of the main characters, a healthy libido and a need for self-validation. It was those around her, the cuckold husband with zero self-esteem, the narcissist, the religious fraud, the misogynist gangster, and the hypocritical big fish in a small pond that conspired to make this volatile mix explosive. Once the initially presumed victim was found, it was obvious, however, who the actual victim was. He was the only one in the flashbacks that wasn't in the contemporary scenes. But just remember two things. Don't call Janet Lee a whore, and don't leave town if Dan August is on the case. In a contrast to the glamorous view of California life in the opener, the second Harry O. pilot, Smile Jenny, You're Dead, shows a far more realistic view of life in L.A. Being a longtime Rockford Files fan, I can see why this similar Harry O. pilot movie ultimately failed to provide a lasting series. Rockford did frequently provide head-scratching endings, like Smile Jenny did. But Garner's series didn't leave viewers depressed every week. That's how this film ended. A damsel in distress and a sicko who happened to be stopped this time, but not after he piles up three corpses. See you next week. That's fine in the cinema, but death on television. Warner ended up retooling this series right into a quick cancellation. I guess they thought that no one wanted to watch a gritty, slow-paced, noir-like detective show during the 1970s. And what kind of TV detective rides the bus around L.A.? The whole love angle between Jansen's character and the lovely but very shallow, very clueless Andrea Markovici character didn't make much sense. Sure, Orwell wanted to protect Jennifer, but surely a shrewd cop would see right through that parade of red flags. Watch for Jodie Foster sleeping outside on property that's probably worth millions today. Clue Gulliger giving Ed Asner a run for his money for the prize of grumpiest rival detective. 
two really creepy photographers, two frankly easy cases, a Barbara Lee cameo that makes you wish you were watching another movie, a schizophrenic Zalman King performance that makes one rethink about having watched Showtime in the 90s, and the inspiration for the rejected title, Red Bowtie Diaries. The Trapcast did bring back some fond memories of Christopher Norris. They really did go overboard with the wolf behavior by the male characters. Massive sexual harassment. But did I dislike the scene she was in? No. No, I didn't. Finally, a big congratulations for being nominated for three Rondo Awards and the L.A. Times article. Thanks again, Amanda. Thanks so much, Adam. That was great. Uh, I have to say we didn't mention that Janet Lee does kill it in the bathing suit. <laughs> You're right, Adam. She looks amazing in that bathing suit. Yes, and she's got this perfect tan. Before we knew we shouldn't be tanning, um, <laughs> but it's her skin is so dark brown. It was beautiful. I think we disagree a little bit on the romance angle. I never listen to Adam's feedback beforehand because he always says really interesting things, and I don't want him to influence my opinion. I don't think that this would have influenced me, but I do think we do disagree. I I I see chemistry between Marco Vici and Jansen, and I kind of get it, and I think it's really sweet. I, it, I think especially in the scene where they're in the bed together. I, I, can, yeah. I can see that. But I understand sort of the idea of, like, it's it's a depressing ending. It really is because her life is kind of destroyed. It's not like a happy ending where she's waving to him and like, thanks, Harry. I'll see you. I'm going to go to my next modeling job. It's like, oh, I have to move back home and my life's been destroyed. And I, I do get that. Um, it is darker than probably a lot of what TV was offering at the time. And it is it is chaotic in a way that... I guess I could see being off-putting to people. And it does have, like, not even just the ending of her life being destroyed, but just, like you said, like, I can fly. Like, what's going on, guys? Uh, and it's interesting what you said about theatrical stuff, too. Oh, it's just real quick about um, – I, I do agree. If the House on Green Apple Road had been released in the theaters, a lot more people would be talking about it today, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I agree. And I, the thing the thing with Harry O, though, if I remember my history correctly, is that um, Harry O's first season did okay – and like I said, I, I love the show. I, I um, Harry is great, and not all the episodes are completely depressing when they get to the end. I think the thing is, when the show got canceled, and I remember this was because David Jansen, when the show got canceled, said he was never going to do another series. And the reason was that when it got canceled, the second season had better ratings than the first season. It was actually picking up an audience. But what happened was this was the time when whatever network Harry O was on began to be, become like a jiggle TV, and uh. Harry O no longer Harry O. Whoever was it, Fred Silverman, I forget the executive who took over this network. Basically, Harry O no longer fit into mm. what was going on. What is it? ABC. Yep. Yeah. ABC, 1976 on ABC. ABC began becoming something else, and Harry O no longer fit. So even though it was doing pretty well, it got canceled. So it wasn't actually, it didn't actually, it wasn't in the toilet when it got canceled. It probably should have got a third season, but it didn't. Aww, that's too bad. Zoma King couldn't come back and fly. Oh, yeah. See, what? that's why I told you earlier. They had that big third season <laughs> ending mapped out. They, yeah. They had an arc. But um, thank you so much, Adam. That was, again, really good feedback. Yeah, and thanks for listening to the Trapcast. And thanks for our congratulations. We're all excited about the Rondo stuff. Um, yay. yay. And so that's our very limited uh, 
feedback because I haven't been really promoting it as well as I should. Hopefully in the next couple months, things will balance itself out better. But um, anyway, let me just tell you what we're going to show next month. And I'm really sad that Nate's not here because I think he would be really excited to find out that we are yeah. basically taking a cruise straight to hell. We are doing two yes. movies that, yes, that take places on boats. <laughs> We're going to watch Death Cruise from 1974 and Cruise into Terror from 1978. Awesome. So we're getting on awesome. we're getting on the love boat, and it's going to turn into something else by the time we get off of it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> awesome. So be and actually, I forgot. I think uh, Christopher George and Linda Day George are in Cruise into Terror, so we're going to get them again yeah. next month, which I'm really excited about. And if you have anything to say about those two movies or anything we've discussed or anything TV movie related, you can contact us a bunch of different ways. You can um, join us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can Find us on Instagram and Made for TV Mayhem. You can follow us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast, or you could find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show, or you could just Google us and find our website because I forgot to write the URL down. I said again, I think it's just um, <laughs> TV Mayhem Podcast.wordpress.com. I think, yeah. um, but just look up the Made yeah. for TV Mayhem Show and you'll find us. And just briefly, I think the Trapcast will be back either in the middle of April or the end of April, depending on when I have time. I've started working on it, but it, it has to kind of take a back seat because I got some freelance work that's taking up all my time right now. But um, anyway, I really enjoy doing the first episode, so I'm looking forward to the second one. And I've already watched each episode twice. I'll watch them a third time just because. And I also wanted to briefly mention, I don't know if I said this, I think I did in the little short mini so we did on the rondos, but we were mentioned briefly in the LA Times when I was interviewed on an article about TV movies. I might have put a link up to it. I'll try to do it again when we post this episode if you want to read it. But I was interviewed along with Mick Garris and also, um, oh my God, I've forgotten his name, the guy who directed Gargoyles. Um, Why can't oh, I remember his I name now? Oh, oh my God. That's not right. I almost said William F. Nolan. It's obviously not William F. Nolan. And I don't know, but it's a name like that. I can't believe I just forgot that because I love him so much. Anyway, and Dan Curtis's daughter was interviewed. So anyway, uh, that was really neat. And I just wanted to kind of point people towards that in case they missed it. And that's all I have to say. Um, Dan? I'm trying to find out who directed Gargoyles is what I'm trying to do. But um, on, on, uh, on, the, on the other side of that, um, I am – what's going on? I'll just uh, throw out the podcast right now. Uh, eventually, Super Train, we are up to episode 66, I think. Uh, and we are on myself, my friend Amy the Conqueror, our friend from Podcast Mania. We are on around episode four or five of Erie, Indiana from 1991. I am on episode five or so of The Last Precinct from 1986. And our good friend Gore Blimey has joined me for the follow-up to Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And we are talking man-to-man -man with Dean Lerner, which is a super fun show. Uh, and then uh, my One Minute with European Zombies uh, podcast, is, uh, which is covering Zombie Lake and Burial Ground. I'm up to around a minute 30, I believe. What's the last one? Oh, the, the Happy Day, Rockin' All Week with You. I The first three episodes are up as we're recording this, covering the first uh, six episodes of Happy Days. The fourth episode will hopefully be going up soon, covering seven and eight. But it's all fun. We're having a, I'm having a good time. So yeah, you can check me out eventuallysupertrain.blogspot.com. You can find it all. Yay! Okay, so everybody check good. that out, and we're gonna close out now because this went on way longer than we we always say that. Yes. We were getting Wait so good, Dan. I know BWL Norton. 
Yeah, Bill Norton. All right. Yes, yeah, we were getting so good in this one. Yeah, we this one went a little longer than the other ones. But well, that's Zalman okay. King. Zalman King. That's true. Yeah, yeah so, that just happened. Uh, yeah, so thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll, I'll sit back. Okay, so we're going to close out with Elvis Costello's Watching the Detectives because that just seems so apropos. And we'll be back to uh, take a boat ride to hell. So we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Watching the detectives. Ooh, he's so cute. She's watching the detectives.